I mean, I I am a ginger. I don't feel like I know any of these ginger tricks. Oh no, <laughs> don't don't associate with these gingers. <laughs> these are different gingers. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we're reading Nightwatch or Terry Pratchett's version of Time Team. <laughs> and our returning guest is writer, editor, and critic Nadia Bailey. Welcome back, Nadia. Thanks for having me, guys. It feels like I just waved forever to react to that. You waved. That's, a- that's how <laughs> yes, long it it's been. <laughs> yes, that's how long it's this been. Is, this is a podcast, Liz. <laughs> You flash well, back to when Nadi was last on the show, when we were in the same room, which was where very waving exciting. still would not have been helpful. <laughs> but it has been three years. Can mm. you believe it? It's been a long time. It's yeah. a weird project where we have people back on, and it's been years since we last spoke to them. But it feels it's, so it's recent, nice. though. Well, there was a pandemic in between, in which we basically did nothing for several years. Yeah, I feel like we just skipped that time. So technically, you were only here a few months ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you, I mean, you, you've been doing stuff in the meantime. Mm, like everybody, your life has gone on. It's yes. not all about the Pratchett for you, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> that would be a sad truth if it were true. Um, what, what have you been doing? You published a few more books. Yes, I have published a few more books. I think since we last spoke, I released a book on Frida Kahlo. Mm. Um, with Smith Street Books, who are my regular publisher, which was just about her life and arts. It's called the Frida A to Z. So that came out. And then more recently, I've just released a, it's not technically a book. It's a deck of cards, but it's kind of like, imagine a deck of tarot cards, but instead of the tarot, each card is about a different crystal. And so each card has a beautiful illustration of crystal. And then on the reverse, it has a little bit about the history and law and supposed properties of the crystal. So it's, yeah, a cute little deck for those inclined. I mean, you're speaking my language now. I I feel like I I want one of these, but, you know, I'm one of those people who would use it for, like, Dungeons and Dragons stuff. (laughs) But I love that. That's very cool. How did you end up writing about – I mean, that seems like a bit of a leap from from books about Stranger Things to Mm. Frida Kahlo to a deck of cards about crystals. Mm. That seems like a bit of a leap. Yeah, in a way. I mean – With these projects, um, I'm very lucky in that my publisher will kind of come to me with projects that they want to do and be like, hey, we're thinking of doing this thing. Is that something you'd be interested in writing? And for some of those things, I'm like, no, that's not my area. And then for some, I'm like, hell yes, that's my area. And when it came to crystals, I did go through a crystal phase as a teen. Um, So I, I did have a background in crystals. So I was like, yes, of course, I will do this, this fun crystal deck. And, and it was nice for me because it allowed me to indulge in one of my favorite things, which is reading a lot of really, really old books that are in the public domain. (laughs) 
yes. to find out about like crystal mythology and lore and the things that people have have believed about them over time. So that was a really fun thing to do. That does sound like a great amount of fun. Liz, you've done some mm. of that in your writing career, right? You've you've researched some very cool old stuff. Some very specific areas. Um, yeah, I've done quite a bit of research on a very specific magician in Melbourne. He died in the 90s, but his name was Will Armour. And um, he dedicated the WG Armour Conjuring Collection in the State Library of Victoria, which is all stored in one room and you can't access it unless you're a researcher or a magician because there are like secrets of magic and that's part of the dedication. So I wanted to see it so badly, I specifically lined up an article so that I counted as a researcher so I could go <laughs> and see it which is kind of like a real sort of like a rubrous of a thing. But, um, yeah, I've been there quite a few times, and it's really cool because he was this guy who collected – I'm not going to do my TED Talk about Will Armour, but basically he researched a lot of magicians, and I'm researching him, and that's just really fun. So if you read the Wikipedia page, um, I wrote that. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Did you get to pick which crystals you put in the deck, or was it was – it, is this enough cards that it's kind of like most of them? <laughs> Um, it, There's a lot of I did get to choose. There are a lot of crystals, um, but basically I ended up picking kind of the most well-known ones, the ones that you might be able to find if you go to a crystal shop, because it's aimed for people who might want to then go out and buy a particular crystal mm. for a particular purpose. Mm. Um, that being said, I did include some quite obscure ones that I personally haven't seen in shops. There's one called Iceland Spa. I think that was the one that was used by Vikings as a navigational tool back in the day. Huh. It's also really? known as a sunstone. Not to be confused with the stone that's currently called sunstone. Different stone. That's awesome. I mean, but you, mm. I mean, we've talked about the books. You also have just started a PhD. I have. I am about a month into my PhD, which is very exciting. It's something that I've wanted to do for a really, really long time. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm doing for the next wow. 3.5 to 8 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was, was going to say. Uh, what area is it in? Mm, the broad area is English. It's an English PhD. So half of it is the novel that I've been working on for a little while now. Um, and then the other half of it is a cultural exegesis, which speaks to the themes of the novel. So mm -hmm. it's a work of historical fiction that I'm writing and set in Australia around the time of the First World War. So I'm researching basically the lives of queer women during World War One and going into the archives to see if there is actually any evidence of their existence during World War I, <laughs> well, no. um, no. which is a fascinating project because there is. People mm. don't think that there would be, but there is. And it's kind of addressing a gap in the scholarship. People do assume that there just won't be anything. There has been some work done by Australian scholars on the lives and experiences of queer men, usually in the context of people who are part of the Defence Force. But yes, very little done on women's lives. So that's what I'm researching. <laughs> I mean, now I feel like we should have asked you to come and talk about Monstrous Regiment. But um, <laughs> you'll be busy. You'll be busy with yes. the PhD by the time we get up to that book. <laughs> I'm um, outraged by how much you are increasing my to-do of reading with all of your projects. <laughs> outraged, but also very glad. Yeah, that's quite a journey you're embarking on. So we oh. wish you all the best. With thank that, you. Of course. And thank you for making time at this early stage of your PhD <laughs> to come and talk to us about a book. But we should probably get 
onto the book because it is it is a it's a hefty boy. It's a chonker of a book. <laughs> um, it's also a lot of people's favourites, so we should we should get into it. Why don't we kick off with our traditional reading of the blurb? Truth, justice, freedom, and a hard-boiled egg. Commander Sam Vimes of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch had it all. But now he's back in his own rough, tough past, without even the clothes he was standing up in when the lightning struck. Living in the past is hard. Dying in the past is incredibly easy. But he must survive, because he has a job to do. He must track down a murderer, teach his younger self how to be a good copper, and change the outcome of a bloody rebellion. There's a problem. If he wins, he's got no wife, no child, no future. A Discworld tale of one city, with a full chorus of street urchins, ladies of negotiable affection, rebels, secret policemen, and other children of the revolution. Oh, that's such a good premise. Like, even though I've read this book so many times, like, it's just so, ooh, so good. Yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and it is taking like a kind of a classic time travel trope that we've seen in lots of things, like most notably Back to the Future, like you thrust back in time and you've messed up your own history and now you've got to put it right. But it just, it might be one of my, I think it's probably my favorite version of this, this story. Mm. Like it is really great. Um, I think, I, I just want to say out front, cause I know this is a lot of people's favorite. I don't know that this is my favorite. Get out. Or favorite Discworld, <laughs> but I do love it. I want to, I want to put that on the, just, I'm just putting that out there. What is your favorite? It's a really hard question. I think at the moment, and I thought about this cause I knew it would come up. I think it's the amazing Maurice and his educated rodents. Which I hadn't read before the podcast. That's a surprising answer, but okay. I just really dug that. And I don't know if it's because I've done so much work with kids. Yeah, I don't know. I really loved it. Anyway, that's a guess. I don't know if that's right. I don't want to pick a favorite. There's so many good ones. (laughs) Pick your favorite child. You Um, must. It's the law. But this is one of the good ones. So let's dive in. I mean, there's a bit of preamble, but really we get pretty much straight into it. I mean, there's a nice, there's a funny scene with uh, Jocasta Wiggs, the apprentice assassin who's sent to have a go at Vimes and falls afoul of his various booby traps. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, but then we kind of get into it. I, I feel like we can't call that. Like, I know we're not going to talk about every single scene, but this is the one that has stuck with me. I picture it regularly. Like, sometimes when I'm in the bathroom, I will think through this. Like, if you hear a noise outside, you're like, it's like, obviously, like, no one's sending assassins after me and I don't have a big sewage <laughs> tank set up for someone to fall into. But there's just so many great lines in that section. And it is a really good way of setting up the rest of the book, I think, because it shows that his life is at a certain point where, like, he can basically predict everything like he is in a rut like a dangerous rut but not quite and the opening of the book unfolds with him being a bit fed up with his life even though he's excited about the fact that he's got a child on the way um who like is coming any day now but he's this fancy guy who has to wear fancy suits he's got a butler he can even guess when the assassins are coming everything's just real smooth and a bit dull to a man like him so he even says at one point oh it's going to be a really long day which is just like a classic sort of time travel preamble so i think like (laughs) yes pratchett does a great job of setting up that things are good and smooth but that's not necessarily good to vimes yeah it really does set up that tension that is carried through the whole of the book where vimes is kind of trying to find his place in the world because his life has taken a very unexpected turn in that he's a duke and he's incredibly wealthy he has all of this power but he still feels like a copper. He still feels like he's the man on the street. And I think this scene kind of perfectly encapsulates or at least sets up that tension. 
Mm. And it's a bit of like, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And it, it's sort of a tension that's been building since Men at Arms when he was getting married. Because in that book, even, there was this sort of expectation that he would have to retire because he was going to become a lord. And he sort of fights back against that and instead gets promoted and then he gets promoted again and he gets another, you know, higher level title as well. And this is sort of where he's kind of gone up as about as far as he can. Like, he doesn't get promoted at the end of this book. Uh, there's nowhere further for him to go. He's already the Duke of Ankh uh, and he's already the commander of the City Watch. What else can he do? He's promoted to dad. <laughs> well, okay, yes, that's true. That's the next thing. <laughs> Um, it's also, it's interesting because I, uh, because this book deals with time travel and there's a lot of date stuff that comes up, like how long ago did things happen? Where does everything fit? It, it led me to go down the rabbit hole of looking at various fan-made Discworld timelines. And it's very difficult to work out because he uses very few actual years and mentions very few actual clues as to how much time passes. But there is, you know, between this and the previous one, the fifth elephant in the watch series, it can't be more than about nine months because <laughs> that's when Sybil finds out she's pregnant and this is when she's giving birth. So that's, that gives you like an oddly specific time frame for how, what's happened. But we know some time has passed and he's been getting on with the job. But even though he's so high up in the social scale and at the top of the watch pyramid, so to speak, there's still a lot he's got on every day. In fact, more, really. I mean, he's got to deal with meetings with the patrician. He's got to meet with- There's now a committee that helps run the watch, it seems, which he's a part of. No, anything but that. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> seems like the worst. And the two main things that are important for the plot, there's a, a killer on the loose named Casa. Who needs to be incarcerated, but has not been. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that's an accident, that one. Because <laughs> he's excarcerated. Uh, if this was a crossword <laughs> clue, it's, um, it's a good cryptic. He's vicious and he's awful and he's quite fun to read about. But he is one of Pratchett's most straightforward, just a total bastard psychopath villains, which he doesn't do that often. Usually the villain has got some sort of political motive or they're- you know, something is going on, but this guy's just like, no, I just like killing people and causing mayhem. And you need that in this book because there's so much of that other stuff in here that if he also had a political motivation, I think my brain would have just like turned into an Escher drawing and never recovered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so that's one thing that's going on. And he's not just on the loose. He's just killed a watchman, Sergeant Strong in the Arm, the dwarf. Who's eating a pie. Uh, who has appeared in a couple of previous books as a minor character. And he wasn't on duty as well. If I'm, it just yeah. comes yeah. back later when he's like, what kind of pie was it? Mm, <laughs> oh, so sad. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> can't say rat because they're still super like speciesist. Yeah. Um, but also, it's the glorious 25th of May, which is a concept introduced in this book that we haven't heard about before. And we're not, it's not really explained at the start. Like, it's significant. Vimes has almost forgotten about it. But he and Nobby and Colin and a few other people, not very many, all get a bit of lilac and they wear it on this day. And it's clearly, you know, it's like a Remembrance Day. It's, it's something important that happened a long time ago. And their attitude to it is really interesting. Like, one of the things that really struck me early on in the book is there's a scene in the watch house where one of the junior guards in the watch plucks up the courage to ask Colin about What's the deal with the lilac? Should we all be wearing it? And he's like, turns at him and goes, oh, you'd wear it today, would you? And you're like, mm, okay, well, I guess it's not like a poppy for Remembrance Day or, you know, a little pin for Anzac Day. This is something else. Mm, it's clearly very personal. Mm. And I think as the book goes, like when you get to what it is and you understand it, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, this makes perfect sense. But when I read that, I was like, oh, I didn't remember it being like this. 
I do. I remember it being so uncomfortable and he's like, oh, should I wear it? And then the, he basically gets rounded on by this senior and it, you can just feel how appalling that, like, it's completely understandable when you understand the book, mm. why that's the reaction, because it is so raw and emotional. But you absolutely, feel, well, I absolutely feel the deep discomfort of this guy who's just trying to find out what's happening. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. They sort of keep it to themselves. They're very secretive about it. Mm. I like how it sets it up as a kind of mystery that then the whole book is kind of like uncovering what that mystery is. It's like you very, very slowly incrementally find out what is the significance of the lilac? What is the significance of this song they keep singing? And it's so satisfying once you get to the end and you're like, oh, fuck, this all makes sense now. Yeah, and it is kind of right at the end where all the pieces fall to because you kind of get the shape of what's going to happen, but then it doesn't, yeah, it's... It's great. We're being very vague. I mean, you've read the book, right, listener? You know, <laughs> you know what happens, probably. Uh, we can spoil this book for you, but we'll get to it. I think we'll get to it in time. Ha ha. See what I did there. <laughs> but oh, it's no. just masterfully laid out. Like it's paced well. The structure is really good. He's like, this feels like he's at the height of his writing powers. He knows exactly what he's doing at every point. Mm. And I mean, at the start of the book, all we get is that this happened 30 years ago. It was some sort of revolution and Vimes's mentor, who hasn't been mentioned in the books either. Like, I think one of the, the real marks that this book leaves on the disc world is that it creates so much stuff that then feels like it was always there. Who was in the watch back 30 years ago that John Keel as, as Vimes's mentor and this idea of the glorious 25th of May. Like, it's, yeah, it's huge. I mean, the other thing though that, that is going to happen is that Sybil's about to give birth, like imminently, like probably today. Uh, so there's a lot going on. There's a lot on Sam's plate as he's meeting with the patrician. Sybil's gone into labor, but she's been looked after by the midwife. And in a very sort of old fashioned kind of way, he's offered to be there. And it's like, no, you don't want to be there. Just go and go and get on with your work. And so instead, he's out across the city. As soon as he hears that they've spotted Casa, he's in the thick of it. He insists on going himself. I mean, this is one of the first times in the book where there's a real conflict between Vimes the copper who's trying to do things by the book and see justice being done, the kind of archetypal good cop, not in the good cop, bad cop sense, but in the sense of what we hope and wish a police force would be and what we were brought up to believe they were, and this sort of more, not like vindictive, but more sort of like pragmatic and violent kind of modern fictional idea of a cop, which we now have, you know, understood as awful and how it has influenced the real world. But, you know, because there's that line early on where the patrician says, are you going to shoot first and ask questions later? And Vimes just looks at him and says, there's nothing I want to ask him. And it's a weird thing because Casa doesn't appear in the book before he's set up just by the other characters telling us, no, he's a total bastard who just kills people. We can't reason with him. And you're like, really? Why? Why? <laughs> like, but then we meet him and we're like, okay. Because he likes to murder and that's his, you know, that's his character motivation. Mm. It does seem to be it. You can't change something that fundamental. Yeah. And this is actually the, the Watchman that he's killed. That's the second one. So, mm. and this again is echoing a lot of ideas from police fiction. Once you're a cop killer, watch out. Like, we're going to get you. And usually, like in most particularly police TV shows and films, um, and particularly American ones, but not just those, that would normally end, uh, and spoiler alert, with them, you know, some sort of shootout or killing the villain or at best that sort of Disney-esque way that we've discussed where the villain is kind of tricked into ending their own life <laughs> accidentally. And cast on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Because they act in a villainous way, even though they're given a chance to- surrender or do the right thing and it sort of like absolves the hero of having to do it but that's not what happens in this book 
also, I think importantly, Vimes has to fight himself for that to really stick to it. Mm. Um, and I think it's one of the things we all like about Vimes. Certainly one of the things I like about Vimes is that he does the right thing, but he doesn't just do it automatically. Like it's difficult. He has to mm. work at it. You've got to choose every day to be the, a good person. It's not just a one-off thing. An interesting thing I thought about when reading this, because like we know how it, the series all sort of pans out, that there's like more Vimes books, et cetera, et cetera. But I was wondering like, the way that it's written, the first time you read this, it seems to me it is feasible that Vimes could be killed off, like, because there's the trope of, you know, the character who's having a child, because you've created a new life, yours is now expendable in fiction. Like, that, mm. you see that a lot in war movies. Like, as soon as someone, like, shows a picture of their sweetheart who's pregnant, you're like, well, you're going to get, like, shot in the first trench. So I think the way it's written, it does, even though I know he's going to be okay, there is a tension that I remember feeling the first time I read it, being like, Oh, this could actually, like, he could be killed off because they have the whole thing about, like, whether he does really want to go back or whether he does want to make this revolution happen. So I think that's also quite interesting. Mm, And especially because it is set up within the rules of time travel that apply in this book. The past is malleable. It can be changed, Mm. even though it will tend towards a certain direction. There's no guarantees. And so when you read it, you do have a sense that, oh, he could die in the past, like that could be the way that the circle completes itself to avoid some kind of, you know, the grandfather paradox or whatever other time travel kind of trope that you want to pick. So I think, you know, one of the great joys of this book is kind of seeing how the time travel is going to be resolved and where the vines will make it out alive. There's real yeah. stakes, like, every mm. step of the way. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. The time travel thing made me think, because he, he could die in the past, but having set up, an alternate version of himself. And so when we got back to the future, it's a different, like that's, that was a definite possibility. Mm. And he might not even know, you know, but I think that would be weird. <laughs> I think that would have been a very weird way to continue. And it's a very brave writer, I think, who's willing to do that with a character. Like I think the only thing, the only time I've really seen that happen is, um, oddly enough, in an otherwise fairly stupid show that I kind of loved called Sliders. I don't know if you ever saw this. It was a TV show. I've heard of it. And I've yes. heard it's good. But, yeah, people trapped traveling between alternate dimensions. And there's one point where they think they've got home, and then it's revealed that it's not fairly late in the episode. And then they find out that one of the people traveling with them has been tied up in a basement by his duplicate from that world who never left, <laughs> like, to go on adventures. And has sort of extracted information from him and is now claiming all this amazing dimension hopping technology is his own. And when they escape and leave, the two versions of this character, Arturo, who's played by John Rhys-Davies, are having like a fight. And then one of them goes through the portal with the other ones and they never resolve which one it is. (laughs) The only thing they do is the one that's left behind looks at the portal and goes, my God. And you don't. And that's not enough. (laughs) Like. (laughs) Like, oh, my God, I'm left behind to carry the can or, oh, my God, they've left without me. Like, we don't know and we never find out. And I wow. and I love that. Mm. But it a, was a pretty- And I think, you know, some viewers might have missed it. Other people might have thought it didn't really matter because they were pretty similar. But, yeah, it was- it, That would have been, I think, what it would have felt like if Pratchett had killed off a version of Sam and created a new one uh, in the future. That would have been really weird. And we would have been forever wondering what what else is different. How is he different, you know? Technically, on philosophy standards, he did kill him off because to travel through time, you have to be, like, disassembled and then reassembled as cells. So, like, it is, like, a new you and you have died. That's why teleportation is such a philosophical minefield. Well, teleportation, yeah, absolutely. But 
uh, I don't know if that applies to time travel via magical lightning strike. <laughs> yeah, but like <laughs> lightning strikes, it depends on whether he traveled through a wormhole or something where like his physical body just passed through time, like, mm. like just straight across, or if like he disassembled in one point in time and reassembled in another. So yeah, it depends on if he maintained the same physical body throughout, um, which I- it's implied that he didn't because his clothes that were from the other era were gone, wasn't it? So well, no, I thought so it was like, implied that it was because the reason his clothes didn't go with him back to the future is that they didn't belong in the future, whereas his body did. So that okay, so they, it's they the disassembled. Same matter. Okay, well, well, yeah. How does that work though? If like your your skin is replenished all the time, so technically, like his skin doesn't belong in the past because it's all new. <laughs> I feel like this is more a Star Trek transporter <laughs> argument. Okay, let's let's not spend like the, the rest of the podcast <laughs> on did he die when he was transported in the past and reassembled? Because um, him, he definitely did, and I'm right. So. <laughs> <laughs> what was that, Nadia? The monks would have a very like cute metaphor to explain it that would be wrong, but would make sense for us. It, it's a it's a sensible lie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense for now. Yeah. Anyway, let's get to the time travel bit because this first sequence, it's all action-packed. It's very exciting. I mean, you can imagine it again, you know, Pratchett and his cinematic sort of sensibilities. You can really see it all happening. Like you've got Buggy Swires, the gnome up on the eagle circling around looking down. It's not an eagle though, is it? Because that's what he wants to have. <laughs> I forgot about that. That was that was quite nice where he's discussing what kind of bird he'd rather have. But he's giving them sort of an aerial view and semaphoring down information. You've got Detritus sort of helping pin down Casa, but then Vimes insisting that he goes up on the roof of the university where he's trapped to get him himself. And they, they end up sort of in a tussle on top of the Unseen University Library, which is a very magical place to be having a, a tussle. As a storm rolls in, an unnatural magic storm, which then dumps all its magic and lightning strikes. And it's interesting that this is written the way it is because it fairly clearly is the lightning strike from Thief of Time, which is all about a magical clock, which when struck by lightning to power it up, stops all time. And they kind of explicitly link the two in the monks dialogue because the monks are also main characters in that book, particularly Lucy. But he also, the way he describes it doesn't quite line up with what happens in the other book. And I think he's left of sort of enough ambiguity there and enough information here that without knowing what happened in the other book, you can kind of just go, oh, a wizard did it, you know, <laughs> like, my God. it's just magic. But yeah, um, after he travels through time, there is a whole lot of naked wizard jokes, which I really enjoyed. Um, don't know if they <laughs> were right, necessary. Kelly comes out of the bath. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Calls for his hat and nothing else. <laughs> yeah, and Kelly's like, I've got my hat on. And then he asks for someone else's hat to cover up, and it's just like, oh, never again wearing this hat, but... Mm. Yeah, it was a yeah. good comic relief that I'm glad was there, but plot-wise, was it needed? For that <laughs> there's a, well, there's a lot of <laughs> nude people yeah, it's a very running nude around book. in this book. Yeah, I think I think that's entirely just a Terminator reference because mm, in Terminator, the true. whole thing is non-organic materials can't go through the time machine unless they're inside organic material, which is why they can send the Terminator back in time because he's got this flesh exterior but they, he can't be wearing any clothes or carrying any equipment. Unless he, like, swallows a singlet or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know why I'm he didn't do that. That's a good, mouth? that's a good, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Like, if you're, like, holding onto it like this, is that, like, technically inside? Like, if it's, like, covered <laughs> no, with so. your... <laughs> don't okay. think it is. All right, so you have to also, again, eat Liz, a singlet. you're on a podcast. <laughs> they can't see Okay, you. I'm going to stop working out the technicalities of how to practically travel through time. But <laughs> that's fine. It's one of those things where you're like, okay, it's an iconic moment. It's a weird rule. 
it's a rule that makes narrative sense, but no logical, philosophical or physical sense. Like you can't really. It's like it's like the whole gremlins feeding them after midnight thing, but isn't it midnight somewhere all the <laughs> yeah. time? Like, or that, it's always after midnight. Or yeah, mm. which I, look, I get it, but from a mystical standpoint, clearly what they mean is after the middle of the night, before the next day starts, and we all understand that. But you can nitpick it, you know, you can get into it. I mean, and look, we oh, make a long anything. podcast about Terry Pratchett. That's what we're here for. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I think you know, I think here Pratchett wisely, as he often does, like kind of just. He kind of only has two flavors of this. Like he either goes super specific and makes up something that's very detailed that kind of makes sense. Like a time monk thing. Or he just ignores it altogether and just goes, it's the story. That's how it works. And yeah, I think on this occasion, he's sort of like, look, it's very complicated and the monks understand it, but they can't explain it to you in a way that you'll understand it. So just trust us when we use all these hackneyed analogies (laughs) that are from other time travel fiction. They're not right, but they're close enough. Shall we, like, just quickly do the dot point version of Vimes arriving in the past? Yeah, so he arrives with his clothes and gear, but wakes up on a doctor's table because after arriving, he's very quickly mugged and has it all nicked. And the doctor is Dr. Mossy Lorne, a great character. (laughs) I love him so much. Who works in the shades mostly with ladies of negotiable affection and their clients, so he's not very respected. But he's a great doctor, which sets up this weird kind of thing where- in books set earlier than Nightwatch, but after the 30 years, Vimes in particular has this massive mistrust of doctors. Everyone thinks doctors and barber surgeons are like, they just cut you up and they don't know what they're doing. So let's get like a vet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yet here, 30 years in the past, is a genius doctor who knows exactly what he's doing and whose patients all live. And he's doing, by our standards, pretty modern kind of medicine. <laughs> uh, I mean, basic modern medicine, but, you know, still- so, I thought that was a bit weird. No, it's a good, I think it's a good nod to like, cause there was a period of time where doctors were like, it's a strange thing where it was not gentlemanly to work, but doctors were still like fancy boys who had a whole lot of ego, which is why like when germ theory came in, they're all like, oh, no, I'm still going to keep like digging through a dead body and then delivering a baby. So what if all the women are dying of some mysterious thing afterwards? Because mm. when the guy came in, was it Semmelweis? I think he came in and said, you should yeah. maybe wash your hands. I've done some experimenting. They're like, no, no, we're, we are fancy gentlemen. Our hands cannot possibly be sullied. And I'm not even going to deign to try your thing. So I think that that maybe not deliberately like a nod to that, that you've got this guy who's willing to do proper work and observe things because he's not working in the fancy parts of town. So he's not held back by ego and all of that stuff. So like, I think he is about the work and not the ego. And so the doctors that Vimes has encountered are the ones who are all about the ego. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. And there's definitely mm. always in, in Angmokpok, like um, the kind of pseudoscience sitting alongside the science. And I think a lot of the, the doctors and, and as we see later, the midwives as well are just kind of like, relying on folk medicine or whatever but then there are a few people who are actual like scientists and doctors but they're few and far between Hmm. yeah like granny's thing about germ theory is like was it like gremlins are climbing up outside the privy and so you have to do this and keep the gremlins (laughs) away you tell them there's yeah goblins in the well or whatever yeah 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 Yeah, that's great mossy lawn's a bit like that i think he's very practical and pragmatic i mean i think He's one of those characters, it's that classic thing that people always talk about in TV writing. He's very good at his job, so we like him. <laughs> you know? yeah. But also, he's just, he's a cool guy. But we don't just meet him, we also meet Rosie Palm, who <laughs> we as readers immediately know is a much younger Mrs. Palm. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, 
it's one of those things where Vimes is like very astute and yet it takes, I feel like he knows on some level what's happened pretty quickly, but he just can't comprehend it. So he goes, surely there's some other explanation. Like that's not quite in the text, but it otherwise doesn't make sense for me for him to meet a young Rosie Palm who he had probably seen at some point in his youth and not go, oh, it's you and you're 30 years younger. I must be in the past. Like, that was a bit weird, but I think also it makes sense in terms of him being discombobulated. But it's interesting, like, the counter to this scene later when Vimes, having recently just returned from the past, goes to find Mossy Lawn. He's kind of like, mm. like, he immediately clocks him as John Keel, even though it's been John Peel. Mm. Keel, Peel. I'm Keel. getting them Keel. Um, well, he's named after John Peel. Is it John Peel? It was Peel anyway, who John created Steele. the modern police force in London. Yeah. But yeah, like 30 years later, he immediately clocks him as that, but still like has that hold back that shows his pragmatism, etc. But yeah. one quick thing, I hadn't before this known what the pun about Rosie Palm was. Um, so <laughs> Neither did that was a, a nice moment for me to, <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> to learn Mrs. that. Palm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is Palm and her. Five daughters or sisters. Yes, or I, yes. I was kind of like, oh, sorry, this, I don't. I didn't. So I shouldn't every time you reread a book, you get something it. new. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Apparently, like you, you do though, because I've read this book like lots of times, and this is the first time I'm like, oh, I see, I see what you're doing there, and it's <laughs> rude. It is rude. It is rude. <laughs> but I, I tell you what's not rude is the way that Pratchett kind of sets up how this is going to work pretty cleverly. I think because not only is he mugged, but he's been attacked. And he's got a, a slice across his eye. So he's got like a sort of a wound on his eye, which means he has to wear an eye patch and he's been beaten up and he looks a bit disheveled and he has to get new clothes that don't fit him quite right. And this means he looks pretty much what John Keel looked like, like not exactly the same, but pretty close. And of course, he's 30 years older than his current self in the past. So it kind of all matches up. And the monks later say, well, clearly, you know, this is history trying to correct itself. Because the other thing that he finds out fairly soon after this has happened is that John Keel himself, who's just arrived in the city, has been murdered by Casa. Uh, so he's able to take his place at the watch house, which we'll get onto because that happens in a minute. But we, we, before that, we get his whole, this can't be the past thing. And there's the classic stuff of him going home and nobody knows who he is. Like Sybil's a young girl and, um, the butler there doesn't know who he is. Uh, and then, he goes to try and talk to the wizards and he gets arrested by the night watch, including a young him who sticks a crossbow in his face <laughs> just as he's about to otherwise kick the asses of all the other watchmen. It's classic stuff. And again, you know, he probably gets through it quite quickly, but you can imagine this happening on screen and being just like, this is cool. I don't know if it would work. Like, this would be a weird book to read as your first watch book. Like, I think everything you need to understand it is in there, but I think it just wouldn't have the same impact if you hadn't spent four or five books with Sam Vimes and the watch already, and particularly guards, guards, I think. Yeah, and you get more out of knowing the young characters. Like, it's it's really cool to see, like, the young version of people you know. Like, when Nobby Nobs pops up and you're sort of getting his origin story, it doesn't pack the same punch just knowing that he's, like, in the later watch. Like, it's, it's like, hanging out with old friends, kind of. No, I mean, I don't know. It's In a weird way, it's kind of like when you, know, you go to a friend's house that you've known for a while and then you see pictures of them as a child just to make me sound like a massive freak. It's like... <laughs> time where you didn't know them but like yeah. they existed and you're seeing a part of them that you were not a part of and that's kind of it, it's yeah. cool like it's yeah mm. and it just like builds in like the backstory of those characters in really interesting ways I think especially with Nobby Nobs I kind of 
never really appreciated his character as much as I did after having read this book when you realize that actually he had kind of like quite a tragic past in some ways like there's that kind of throwaway line where Vimes like remembers that Nobby's dad used to break his arms and it's really dark it's like incredibly dark it's actually a very dark book which I'm sure we'll talk about more later but um, I feel like it's definitely Mm. one of the darker books in the series oh definitely there were some bits that didn't quite line up for me talking about the characters pasts but I think that's just because from what we already knew I had a very different idea I never thought of Nobby as being so much younger than Fred, for example. Mm. And also, we know that they both had this military service because it's repeatedly talked about and Nobby's whole thing was stealing stuff off the corpses of the enemy and indeed um, his own side after the battle was over. Um, yeah, practice from that like little wooden set that he got given as a child. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um and for me, I was reading it and I was sort of like, oh, I mean, I guess you can't have that bit of their history here because they've got to be here for this part but you know in a real way Nobby's not he's sort of a weird outsider because he's a street urchin who gets employed by Keel in inverted commas uh to inform for him the difficulty for me was then I was trying to fit what I already knew about them into the 30 year gap in between and I'm like but Fred's already in the watch like does he quit and go and do military service and then come back to the watch is that I mean that's got to be what it is because otherwise it doesn't make any sense well one of the patricians could have introduced compulsory military service somewhere in between yeah. mm, that's true. well I guess that's that's true that could definitely be something that um, snapcase does <laughs> and in terms of the age difference like it doesn't necessarily have to be so much it could be as little as like it could be less than 10 years because they mentioned that Colin is newly married and has just joined the watch and he could be like 18 mm. to 21 for that mm. um, in this society. Yeah, that's true. It's it's always useful to remember that the disc world is sort of, even though when you look at the years, it's sort of meant to be the, their equivalent kind of the late 20th century. They still are much more like Victorian London and every everyone's living shorter and they're getting married earlier and having children earlier. And that's, that's sort of in there too. Mm. Just plugging the gaps. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so Vimes does his whole, why is everything wrong? And ends up in a jail cell in the watch house next to someone else who's ended up in a jail cell in the watch house. Casa. But he bribes one of the guards and gets let out because he's just been done for loitering. He didn't attack any watchmen. That they saw. Uh, and as he points out, no one here knows I'm a villain, so I can get away with things. And Vimes is like, oh, this is, this is fucked. <laughs> he's not, he's not happy about it. But then when he gets brought in front of the current captain, Captain Tilden, who's like an old military guy mm-hmm. who's been put in charge of the Night Watch, he's already, when someone's asked him his name and he instinctively knew something was wrong, even when he woke up in the surgery of Dr. Lorne, he has given a false name. And the name that just popped into his head was John Keel because he'd been on his mind earlier in the day. And now he's like, okay, well, I'm going to pretend to be John Keel because I'm not sure where I am. And they reveal to him that Keel's been killed. And so you can't be Keel. He is keeled over. And they're about to haul him off, keel haul him off, I guess, to um to to put him back in the cell and maybe get him hanged because they think he probably killed the real kill when um the monks yank him out of time in order to tell him what's going on and help him get set up. And this this is kind of a nice, you know, this is your Doc Brown coming in to explain things moment, uh, if we're gonna use an extended back to the future analogy. But I look anytime the monks show up is it's pretty fun, and they're particularly great in this book and Thief of yeah, Time. Yeah, that was a real joy. Just put Lucy in every- like, Technically, he could be in every book, you just don't know, but yeah. Yeah. They basically explain to him, yes, John Keel is dead, Casa killed him, 
this is a problem because it's breaking history because you need John Keel or the glorious 25th of May won't go according to plan uh, and history will change and the future that you're from won't exist anymore. And the whole point of the history monks, they have to put history back together again when things go wrong, like the magical clock exploding or this magical storm. But sometimes they have to put things back differently. Uh, And this goes all the way back to small gods where they stitch a new version of history together. And that could happen here, but they're giving Vimes the opportunity to try and put it back pretty close to what it was before so that he can go home. And uh, I love that Q, the the (laughs) boffin of the history monks. The Bond boffin. (laughs) Is not keen on this. He thinks this is a bad idea, but he's allowing Lucy to go with it because Lucy sees this as the right thing to do. Uh, but Vimes, yeah, agrees to pretend to be Keel and knowing what has happened, they put him back in front of Tilden and he gives a much more satisfying answer about what happened to him. Like he claims that his credentials got stolen and, and he knows all these details because he remembers having learned them in the past. He relies a lot on stuff he remembers happening 30 years ago and convinces them that he is John Keel. Most of them, anyway, one person in particular, as we'll get to, is a bit suspicious of him, and steps into the role of his former mentor and joins the watch. And uh, like you were saying, Liz, you know, this is him struggling with that idea of, I've been promoted, I'm now the Duke and the the commander, but here I get to be just a cop again and wander around with my, you know, very thin-soled boots, knowing where I am from the feel of the cobblestones and solving crimes and catching bad guys. And there's like an... Throughout the book, there's an interesting ethical quandary he finds himself in because he does like being back there and he does like being like the purest version of himself as a policeman as he likes. But there's also like, is it ethical for him to go back when he has the possibility of saving lives, changing the outcome and making the city better earlier on with all of his knowledge? Like, cause he keeps going, I have to get back to Sybil. I have to do all these things. But at the same time, with his knowledge, he could potentially save all the people who die in the revolution. He knows what the next patrician is going to be like. Like, you would grapple with the idea of if there's a possibility I can make things better earlier, maybe I should stay. Maybe I shouldn't go back, even though I, I personally mm. will lose things out. But that's yeah. complicated by the fact that part of him also enjoys being there. So you're like, am I just trying to rationalize staying because I want to? Yeah, it's the classic time travel conundrum when you go into the past. Can we change things? What effect does that have? And, you know, yes, we can change things. So we know some things will be better. But we don't know what other changes it'll make. You know, are we going to make life worse for some people? Are some people never going to be born? Are some people going to die earlier? What What is the deal? And in the end, I think, you know, what he ends up doing is keeping history mostly the same, but with a lot less people dying, essentially. And the worst violence of the bit of the revolution that he was involved in is kind of avoided because he sort of uses his knowledge of the future and his superior tactical knowledge mm. to, to do it. But also, at the same time, there's several points where he does what he remembers the real John Keel doing. And I, I kind of like that there was a real John Keel. Like, that's something that in some of these stories, there isn't one. Like, you go back in mm. time and you realize, oh, I always was. Whereas this one, it's explicitly he's replacing the original who was a real person and who did exist in this timeline, but died before they could do that part of their lives. But his legacy is maintained, so he still gets credit for like the things he did in the other timeline, even though he didn't have the opportunity to do them here, he would have. So I think that's kind of nice as well, that he mm. is remembered the same way. Mm. And there's like an extra stake for Vimes because Keel is his mentor, and it's set up very clearly that this is kind of like the pivotal moment in Sam's life where he kind of has the choice to become 
a good cop or a corrupt cop. And it's、mm. through this influence of John Keel and his kind of example that Sam ends up becoming that the person that he is. And so、mm. he's now back in time and tasked with this、uh, challenge of making sure that he turns out to be the person that he is by providing himself with his own good example. Yeah, which is just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I, I particularly enjoy the way that also influences the older Sam too.、Mm. Like, there's several bits in the book, including right near the end, where he feels the eyes of his younger self watching him, and、yeah. it's like when your little sibling is watching you, but way worse because <laughs> it's you. And I'm like, that is great. That's genius. I think the other thing that's interesting for me is that it really shows, like, they build the John Keel up as this huge figure in Sam's life, who was his mentor, but he's not there for more than a few days.、Mm. You know, like when I was reading this and I, I was doing my recap, I was like, oh yeah, his first weeks under the night one. I'm like, no, wait a minute, this like, there's no more than a few days passes in the past, and that can't, and because the original history was Keel showing up at the same time and dying around the same time. That means like he had this huge impact in like three days,、mm. and when you see what he does and his attitude, you're like, yeah, I can understand that because he sort of comes in and just cleans house, and that's the first thing that Vimes does when stepping into the role is he cleans up the corruption in the watch because they're living under this horrible patrician, Mad Lord Winder, and he he is super paranoid about being assassinated and people taking tightly wound. <laughs> Weirdly, I, in my mind, I pronounce it Winder, but、um, so was I. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Winder works well. I just thought Winder,、mm. but、uh, Winder's also good because <laughs>、well, he goes out the window, like not literally, but like. <laughs> yeah,、uh, but because he's so paranoid, he has like this. He has a curfew. Everyone's got to stay at home, and he's also empowered this sort of secret police. Uh, the unmentionables, as they're called for short,、um, or the Cable Street Irregulars, is their、uh, official name. They're sort of like a Gestapo style. They'll they'll come and knock on your door in the middle of the night and take you away and torture you. Like it, they're awful. They're awful,、mm. and they're led by another psychopath. Find the swing. What a great name!、Oh, yeah, I love it. Who's <laughs> an ex-assassin who thinks you can determine a person's personality by measuring their facial features? It's like a sort of external phrenology. <laughs> And yeah, it's just horrifying. This is a weird turn of phrase I've used here because, of course, all phrenology is external. Any sort of pseudoscience that measures the bumps on the inside of someone's skull to determine their character would have severely limited predictive use, since it could only be applied posthumously. Just to jump ahead, though, to the end of Swing, because he's like a good sort of subvillain throughout. He gets literally killed by a ruler, so there's like a good double level to that because of his whole like outside phrenology thing, and because he、yeah. supported this terrible ruler. So it's just <laughs> delightful, and it's his own ruler. It's his own metal ruler as well. Yeah, so very, it's just very just levels on levels. Very satisfying. Yeah, and I, you know, I said earlier that you know we don't get the villain gets killed by the hero thing, but we kind of do because along the way we get find the swing killed off by Vimes as and、Keel. his weird. Pauses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask、great. you guys, like, who do you find the more terrifying villain out of Swing and Casa? I mean, Swing. I think. It, I mean, they're both terrifying, but Casa just doesn't like. You just know he's going to kill you, and he just doesn't care. Like, he's not. He's not、mm. doing it for any particular reason. Like, he doesn't think he's doing the right thing. He just wants to do it. And doesn't care. So I don't think he, I don't think he really is a psychopath. Really, I don't. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. He's just like awful. 
But then Swing is like this oppressive arm of a totalitarian regime who has all this power and thinks that he knows right from wrong and will judge you as wrong and kill you accordingly. And it's a little bit like in one of Pratchett's other books where, you know, they talk about a good man who believes will like look you in the eye and kill you um, when he's thinking about Carrot. And you're like, yeah, he's kind of like the worst version of Carrot. I think if I had to choose to be murdered by one of them, I would choose to be murdered by Carcer because I think he just enjoys the killing, whereas the other guy, he will make it a whole thing. He'll denounce your legacy and he'll probably torture you as well. That's true. So yeah. I reckon in terms of a better death, you'll get it from Carcer. Swing is scarier in all the stuff that goes around the edges of what he does. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think that Swing is particularly scary because... I think Vimes thinks at one point that he's a reasonable man. He uses reason to his ends and he's found a way to have his particular brand of thinking kind of enshrined in law. Like he, he's a tool of the state. And so the violence that he meets out is sanctioned, um, even though it's still shady and, and, you know, done in the dark, but he works within the law. Mm. And he gets more people involved in mm. it too. Mm. There's a certain thread, and I actually don't – a lot of people talk about this, and I don't think it's as big a deal as some people make it out to be, but there there is a sort of an echo of Le Miserable in this book, uh, mostly around the barricade stuff and the, and the rebellion and how that works out, because Le Miserable is about the failed rebellion. It's not about the actual, you know, revolution in France. But I don't know that Swing quite fits into that, but I think he almost is kind of like the Javert figure in a way in this sort of weird reversal where the policeman is the good guy <laughs> but he feels a bit of that role maybe i don't know he now you're making me right. picture him as russell crowe doing very bad singing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think the from the physical description i sort of more as sort of a small weaselly lithe kind of man i never I really know. pictured him he's kind of one of those abstract concepts to me like i guess i don't always invest in picturing characters they're just kind of like amorphous blobs of motivations hmm. yeah sometimes like even just skip like i don't know what color hair they have even if they go into great detail to be like they have twinkling eyes and long flowing locks i'm kind of like you know that that's a it's a suit of armor that is doing oh now they're wearing a, a leather jerkin but i don't really imagine the faces of characters hmm. really every time i picture vimes i actually picture yeah the front cover of Nightwatch. yeah right no matter what yeah, well, I think- stage we're at the the Paul Kidby version of Vimes, I think, has become the dominant one in a lot of our mind's eyes because there's mm. been so many iterations of that illustration. I don't know. I Yeah, I don't think I've ever quite – like, I we, we've talked about The Watch and how I think Richard Dorman does actually a pretty great job of being an early Vimes, but I mm. can't imagine that version of the character being this Vimes. No. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. This is just about how brains work, though, right? Like, because people imagine things and read differently. So, mm. yeah. Are you? Do you visualize things when you're reading, Nadia? Uh, sometimes, sometimes not. I mean, I think I did visualize Swing a little because there is that section where he is described quite clearly, like he has the comb over, he carries this cane that's also a sword. So I do have some sense of what he looks like. I have less of a sense of what Castle looks like, I think. I think I'm just picturing kind of generic, slightly mad eyes kind of villain. Mm-hmm. I picture a veterinary more in this one, though, because I think they spend a lot of time on what he's doing and, like, his physicality through this book is so important. So if I did picture something, I mostly pictured his scenes. 
because there's like that scene of him just learning to stand still in a corridor and the teacher's like well obviously he's just doing and I didn't see him for the rest of the day so he must have left and I'm like <laughs> yes <That's> so good <laughs> oh he's the best I do enjoy the little cameos of characters who are not in the book a lot but are callbacks to characters that we've already met in the future so to speak Corporal Quirk is there in, in the Night Watch who gets ousted for being corrupt because he's taking bribes to not drop people off at the irregulars because one of their jobs is to patrol in the evening as the night watch. And if they find anyone who's out past curfew, they're supposed to arrest them and take them to the unmentionables. But sometimes, you know, they'll take a bribe. So people who've got money get away with it. And then the poor people are the ones who get taken there and tortured. Vimes as Keel exposes that, kicks Quirk out. He turns up in guards, guards. He's at that point, he's become commander of the day watch and thinks he's much better than Vimes, but he's also <laughs> useless as a copper. So there's there's a nice sort of backstory for him there. There's one of the other sergeants who's like, oh, this guy's cleaning house. We've got to get rid of him and tries to frame him for stealing something from the captain. Totally outsmarts him. That's Sergeant Nock, uh, which I quite liked. That was great. And doesn't go quite the way you think it's going to go. Yeah. And there's that devastating moment because what happens is they steal the thing from Captain Tilden and they've clearly hidden it in Keel's locker so they can expose him as a thief. But Vimes knows this is going to happen and breaks back in secretly in the middle of the night and moves it. Oh, and you think yeah. he's going to put it in someone else's locker, but he actually hides it in the, the captain's office that where hurt. it's not supposed to be. And there's text where Vimes is going, I know this is awful because he's of a certain age where it's going to make him doubt his own faculties. But he says, are you sure that's where you left it? And makes him believe that he just misplaced it rather than that it was stolen. And that is kind of devastating because this book was published some years before Pratchett's own diagnosis with Alzheimer's and it's just oh mm. I'd forgotten that bit and reading it I was just like oh oh no it hurts a lot and yeah. like it's also like the captain is you know he's he's a simple military guy like he's got basic values but he seems at his core like even though he does like heck himself off at a at a pivotal moment um it's just he seems like a nice guy. He deserves better than that. It was just... And, like, when you see Vimes feeling bad about it, I was just like, could you have done literally anything else? Like, yeah. put it somewhere for cleaning or something. I don't know. Yeah. I do also like that one of the other things he does is start to defy the powers that be. He goes out on the evening patrol. They find some people who are out after curfew who've already been arrested or, and stuck in the wagon that they use to transport them. Including the seamstress who's actually a seamstress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Needlewoman. Oh, that was very funny. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love her. I can't good... remember her name, but I love her. She's so yeah. good. Some very good gags come out of that as well. But he insists on the paperwork because they don't normally sign the prisoners over. And he's like, no, you sign the prisoners. Like, you have to know where they are. And by insisting on that, that, the unmentionables, of course, don't want to do that because they want all their stuff to be secret. They don't want anyone to know who they are or what they're doing. So they let the people go. Swing does not like this and sends some people to kill Keel, but he fights them off and then reflects on what actually happened. And there's a nice bit where he sort of goes through and he remembers, you know, like, what's going to happen? What, is there a revolution? Not really. There's a plot to overthrow the patrician, which includes, like, some people who live on the streets, like Rosie and Dr. Lorne and- a couple of others, including Dibbler, of all people, which yeah. I don't know. Did you find that hard to believe? Like, this is a Dibbler who's at the start of his career. He's literally just started, like, days earlier selling pies on the street. 
But he's involved and he in gets this taught plot. To the, his classic <laughs> phrase gets taught to him by Akil as oh, well. Yeah, it's like, oh, you'd right. be uh, cutting your own throat, would you? He's like, what? What, what do you mean? I mean, do you, do you did, think did he's Did like, corrupt him? Well, I mean, I, no, I think his instinct was already there, but he didn't have the name. Although it's in a, I think it's in a later book, they reveal that his actual initials are CMOT. Like, that's his actual name. Um, <laughs> Seems very far-fetched. But he might have, maybe he changed his name to that so that it would match. Who knows? But no, but my question is, do you believe that he's in on it? Does he really know politically? Is he, is he that savvy- and that motivated, or do you think he's been roped in because his whole pie selling thing is a useful way for the rebels to pass messages between each other, which is what he's doing? Because Vimes as Keel buys a pie from him and eats it, and there's a secret message telling him where the plotting is going to happen that night. Or is that why he started selling pies? Since it's such a, a new thing, mm. like the the selling of pies is a cover and it's just a way to deliver messages. Like it could go one of two ways. Like it could be like. He's just a businessman looking for where he thinks the wind is blowing and he might think that the revolution is going to be the way forward. So it's good to get in with these guys. He could be playing both sides or he could be an example of someone who was super idealistic and then had all of that sort of stamped out of him and is now just like, no, I'm just going to look out for me because all of this around the edges is so uncertain. There's no point fighting for a cause. Like, and I, d- I honestly don't know which one I think is the one that is correct. Mm. Yeah, my impression was that perhaps he wasn't really ever intending to be involved in any major way. Maybe they paid him to pass the messages around and then he just kind of gets pulled into the revolution and then after it's over, he's just back to being like a regular guy selling pies. Like I don't get the sense that he was ever really invested in the revolution for Mm. revolutionary reasons per se. Mm. Yeah, because I I don't think he's actually at the meeting that he's passing out notes for. I don't think he's actually there. So maybe he is just sort of supporting them by passing messages. But there were a few meetings, weren't there? Yeah, well, the Morphic Road one is like, in the original timeline, it gets raided by the unmentionables and everyone is either killed or arrested or a couple of them escape. But in this timeline- you know, because he gets the message, Vimes remembers it. And he's like, oh, I might just go on patrol there <laughs> while it's happening and heads that off at the pass by making a lot of noise and arresting one of the unmentionables because they're not carrying any identification and they've got a concealed weapon. <laughs> and they tell him that they're unmentionable. He's like, I don't care. You can claim that. You don't have any ID. And by making a loud ruckus, like, allows them all to escape and they don't get arrested. So, he changes history in that way. But isn't there a raid somewhere else? Like, isn't there, like, a thing about it balancing out because, like, then something happens that, I don't know. Yeah, there's, I mean, because basically the history that he sort of establishes is that, yeah, there's these people on the ground trying to organize the revolution and some of them have some influence and power. But while the actual changeover is going to happen fairly bloodlessly, there's going to be an assassination and then the new patrician will be installed in sort of the upper class society. That's what's happening at the ground level in order to distract guards and stuff. There's people in the streets who are rioting because, you know, they, well, they start out with peaceful protests and then they send in troops to try and control them. And then some idiot throws a brick and then there's horses involved. So they, people get trampled. And like when you consider when it was written, it feels like quite a modern commentary on the militarization of police and the use of those sort of resources around peaceful protests for genuine political purposes. But it's the people on the street who suffer. Like, they're the ones who are being trampled mm. by the military horses and, and getting shot with crossbows. And there's a moment where somebody gets shot with a crossbow and that sort of sparks violence that goes across the city. And there's, like, fighting breaks out. 
And then his part, like as a young man and as the watch house was Keel sort of like barricades off their bit of the city and tries to protect the citizens there because he says, that's our job. We're not Mm. here to fight on behalf of the knobs. We're here to look after the everyday people. That's our job as as policemen. So, it's an interesting kind of setup. And in a way, it's, I mean, that's this is where it sort of does mirror that Les Mis story because the people on the barricade in Les Mis, I think they're fighting a revolution, but actually they're just a relatively small number of people and they get slaughtered by the guards and die and there's no revolution. And this is kind of similar to that, except they do change the person who's in power at the top. But that was kind of happening anyway. Yeah. I think there's bits of it that are not 100% clear, but it, it's okay because it's not 100% clear to the people involved either. Why the riding in the streets is necessary to make the plan work or whether that's just an unavoidable consequence of the fact that Lord Winder is awful, you know, and is, mm. has all these oppressive policies that are just making the people miserable and turning their lives to just utter crap, and they don't want to put up with it anymore. It's hard to say. Should we talk about veterinary's role through all of this? Because we can probably just sort of talk about how he's dotted across yeah. all of it. Because we get a glimpse into Assassin School, which, again, I would have loved its own book. Oh, my God, Like, to get yes. a bit from Pyramids, but can you imagine just, like, a look at this weird sort of society? Anyway, you get to see Veterinary at School, which is one of my favourite, I think, character insights throughout. Because I don't know what I was imagining, but I didn't expect him to be, like, bullied. But he's not really, like, he's allowing himself to seem like he's being bullied because he knows that he's kind of got the upper hand anyway. So like this sort of Lord Downey, who's like the big meathead jock who thinks that he's doing all this stuff actually is not achieving it. But yes, um, we meet him at assassin school where he's learning how to camouflage himself from this super rare book that gets immediately destroyed. And he's like, well, okay, that's fine. And then we slowly sort of see how he uses that across the book. Like he protects Vimes at one point. Then he had a, a meeting with his aunt yeah, Madame Roberta, who is clearly the major instigator of this whole plot, but she's not. It doesn't even live in Ankh-Morpork. That lady from Genua. Yeah, and she's sort of come in, and there's a point where somebody, I think Vimes, because she brings in Vimes as Keel at one point to try and recruit him, and he's like, I don't really want to be part of your revolution because it's going to hurt a lot of people, even though it might be doing something good. I don't know if he says it out loud, but he certainly thinks the thought, you're only doing this really because you can't trade with someone like Winder. <laughs> Mm. And and it's very politically motivated. So, there is that kind of politics in the book. It's just Carcer is not involved in that, really. He just sees it as an excuse for violence. But, yeah, so she's in there. Mm. And she's got the cat. And there's a nice sort of juxtaposition between her and Veterinari. And it's an interesting sort of dynamic to see what his family is like. Yeah. And they had that great conversation where she's like, oh, you got really bad marks in the class of, like, where you can't be seen. She's like, I went to every single lesson. And she's like, but he didn't see you there. And she's like, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That was so funny. Veterinary is just so cool. Like, he's one of my favorite, favorite characters. So it's such a treat to see this backstory. And he's still incredibly cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I really like that we still have that hole in his life. Like, it's still a mystery how he actually becomes patrician. Mm. But there's that hint in this book that he was planning it all along because when he- Because, spoiler alert, he ends up being the assassin who kills uh, Lord Winder. Um, what an amazing scene, by the way. He turns yeah. up, yeah, all clad in black in the traditional sort of assassin's garb, wearing a mask so you can't see his face. And Lord Winder says to him, who are you? And he says, I am your future. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, <laughs> okay. Do you mean that literally? Do you know you're going to be patrician? 
already? Or is this just like a coolest shit thing that you're going <laughs> to say before you kill this guy? It wouldn't surprise me if he did. Like, I feel like that Inari plays the longest of all games and mm. perhaps he was planning right from, right from the start. Because he doesn't care about grades or like passing assassin school. Mm. He's just there to get all of the helpful knowledge. knowledge. But yeah, he's got a different end goal to everyone else. I think in my head canon, like once he gets out of assassin school, he doesn't work as an assassin. He goes on like sort of a Bruce Wayne like pilgrimage around the world, gathering all of the information and skills he needs to become the patrician. <laughs> but then, like unlike Bruce Wayne, he doesn't come back and dress up as a bat and beat up poor people. He he uh, deposes the corrupt leadership and makes life better for people in the city. Which yeah, that's my that's my veterinary head canon now. It's funny that you mentioned Bruce Wayne because reading this book. At times, Vimes reminds me of Bruce Wayne because mm. he's at a point where he's like a millionaire, but he's also like, he has almost a supernatural ability to like blend into the dark. Like he has some of the same skills that Veterinari has. He can hide mm. in the shadows. He can make himself disappear. He can creep through the city unseen. He can feel the city through his feet and be able to like find his way. Um, and there were points where I was like, wow, is he like, he is kind of like Batman at this point. Yeah. Except that he really doesn't, even though in the present day he is incredibly wealthy, he doesn't really use his wealth in pursuit of his job. Like he's still just like, no, I'm a copper. I do a copper's job. Um, it's mm. not like he's running around with Batmobiles and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, he sees it as totally separate mm. part of his life. And it, in fact, the end of this book is like the first time you really see him leverage that wealth for something when um, he promises Mossy Lawn as much money as he wants. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll build you a hospital. I'll do whatever you want. And he holds up his end of the bargain as you expect Sam Vimes to do. That's that's the first time you really see him do that. And I don't know that he does that in any of the later books, really. And I guess it's because it's separate still from his role in The Watch and it's more about his role in his family. And so the wealth is tied to family things. So it probably feels okay to do it in that arena of his life. Though I do feel like maybe his contributions to the widows and orphans funds have gone up since yeah, definitely. since all of this. Yeah. Let's push on with the plot. Around this time in the book is also when Vimes meets the young Nobby and <laughs> he sort of pays him to, you know, keep an ear to the ground and tell him what he finds out. But he also finds out Nobby's already being paid by someone to follow him around. Several people, in fact. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he says, look, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you more. Keep their money. I'll pay more and you come and tell me everything first, which is quite nice. And then just feeds him a bowl of soup, takes him to a place and says, anytime this guy comes here, feed him. Here's some money. What do we think of young Nobby? He's very cute. Mm, He's charming. And there's some just wonderful descriptions of him. Um, Glutinous, his voice is described as, which (laughs) is one of my favorite descriptions ever. Uh, At another point where he says, my mom calls me insidious. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, yeah, wonderful descriptions of Nobby. Yeah. And I think you can really see Pratchett's love of Dickens coming through. Like, he's a real Artful Dodger-style character, but just much grosser. Yeah. (laughs) Which which is great. But, yeah, they also, this point of the book, uh, you know, after the whole Morphic Street thing, he also finds out that Casa is not only free, but has become a member of the Unmentionables. Because he's like, oh, great, I can join up with the cops and torture and murder people. Awesome. And they have a bit of an altercation, but they manage to get away. And there's that bit in that altercation where Casa's like, oh, that's young you. Oh, 
what can I do mm. if I could get my hands on young you? And there's, I feel like the implication is both that he's interested in finding out what happens if I torture young Sam, mm. what happens to mm. old Sam, but also there's the very clear implication that if I could get my hands on young Sam, instead of you mentoring him, turning him into a great cop, I could turn him into a real villain and we could rule this city together. Mm. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. nasty. I think, like, this kind of gets to perhaps what the heart of the book is, which is, in, in one sense at least, it's kind of the battle for Sam Vime's soul. And, like, you have mm. good angel mm. John Keel and, and evil devil Casa both trying to get at young Sam because he has the potential to be a great leader and a great man. He also has the potential. He, You know, he talks about the beast and the beast mm-hmm. inside him. He has the potential that he could become another Casa and just be, like, a terrible, murdering, awful cop. So, yeah, I think that that's one of the most interesting parts about the book is that you've got kind of Sam's soul hanging in the balance. Mm. Yeah. I, it's, and it, it's, it sort of hangs, yeah, hangs over the book all the way right to the end. Um, and it informs so many of Vimes' decisions mm. while he's being Keel. Like, not just in terms of what he does in front of himself, but even right at the final battle, like he knocks his young self mm. out and goes, you should be out of this. And it feels very mythic, <laughs> if I can use a prejudice. <laughs> Do you think he was knocked out in the original version of events? It's a good question. He doesn't really talk too much about what he remembers from the original, but the original is very different because they were attacked at the barricades Mm. and just sort of had to survive until word came through that there'd been a change at the top. Whereas in this version, they survive all of that. And then- Amnesty is not. Casa and some other men are sent specifically to kill him. Mm. And they sort of run away and go back to the watch house to sort of have a defensible position. So it's very different. So it's hard to know. Yeah. Like it's been a formative few days, like, as you pointed out earlier, it's only been like three or four days and he basically shapes the rest of his life. So I guess I just wondered the significance of like, even just that small thing that changes his involvement in that big scene. Like, surely there'd be like concerns about how that would impact things, but we don't know what happened in the original and it could have been a similar situation. And the outcome is still the same. Like he's lost the same people. He's had the same disillusion. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of that the monks sort of talk about that idea of history wanting to kind of go back to something close to what it was originally. Yeah. So, I probably. I mean, he's so yeah. young and he's he's pretty green. I mean, he does fight, but then I think him getting knocked out sort of- It probably wasn't- del- My feeling is it probably did happen, but it wasn't deliberate in the original timeline. Mm. Like, he just got knocked out. Yeah. Um, At least he didn't cut his own throat falling off the barricade like someone else oh, apparently did. <laughs> so upsetting. I know, but it's also just darkly funny. Yeah, yeah. Back at the the watch house, the rioting in the city is getting worse. There's more violence because of, you know, the military being sent out to control, in inverted commas, protests and it all going wrong and there being more unrest and people have died. And Vimes again is like going, oh, no, I know what's going to happen next. And so he starts to gather the, the watch together and um, make sure they're ready and prepared. People are already showing up at watch houses at this point, and this is before the big outbreak of violence towards the end, but they're showing up at watch houses and throwing bricks through the windows and stuff. And people do show up at his watch house in Treacle Mine Road, but he sort of talks them down. And there's this amazing scene where he, like, sort of just goes and sits on the step. With a cup of cocoa. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's the rioter who's angry enough to do something, and the thing that he does is smash a bottle against a wall in order to use it as a weapon. And Vimes just sort of waits for him to do it because he knows that, 
most likely if this guy hasn't done it, and especially if he's been drinking, he's just going to cut his hand. Mm. And that is indeed what happens. He smashes the bottle and slices his hands up. And yeah, Vimes diffuses the situation by acting with sort of ruthless compassion, I think is a good way <laughs> to, like he lets this guy hurt himself so that he can then look after him and, and have everyone witnesses. see that that's what happened. So it's very calculating, but at the same time, kind of the right thing to do <laughs> to yeah. diffuse the situation. Yeah. It's a utilitarian thing. Let this guy hurt himself, but it's like a lot of other people will stay uninjured because you do. Yeah. But this is also when, because he's arrested one of the unmentionables, he's got him in the cells downstairs, the unmentionables come to try and kill them and take their guy back. But he's set up booby traps. And again, this is like an echo of the first scene with the assassin. They fall through the roof and there's nails on the floor and stuff. It's great. And they capture a couple more of them. And then also this is one of the scenes where Vetinari turns up and saves Vime's life because there's one of the unmentionables on the roof who's about to shoot him with a crossbow and Vetinari kills him first. And Vimes doesn't know. Vimes doesn't know that it's mm. that it's Vetinari who's done that. And in fact, yeah. I don't think he finds out until right at the end. Um, at the very end of the book, he kind of puts it together. Yeah, because he never sees Vetinari. Yeah, exactly. In the past. Which is one thing that no I actually one does. really like because you know the conceit of these time travel stories is that all of the characters kind of meet in the past, and you get these interactions that are kind of cast in a new light because it's happening in the past. But Vimes and Vetinari, they actually don't cross paths. And I really mm. like that because it just put a little twist on that. You kind of almost expect them to meet and then they don't. Yeah. Mm. I like that too. And I, I think actually if there's one, if there's one thing that I kind of wish had been done maybe a little bit differently in this book, I kind of wish there was more of that where it wasn't just about all these characters we know meeting earlier in new circumstances. Cause there's so many characters that we're familiar with who show up younger in this book. I kind of feel like I would have liked to have seen an earlier chapter of Vimes' life that was his life, that wasn't necessarily everybody else as well, because it's so much a book about him. Um, and I mean, in a TV show, for example, you always have the same people turning up because for budget reasons, you want to reuse your regular cast. You don't want to cast a whole new cast of people. Um, so it makes sense and we accept it. But I feel like this book does the same thing, but it's a book. It doesn't need to. You can invent as many characters as you want. And there are some great new characters. Like, I love uh, Madame Roerta and I love uh, some of the other revolutionaries. Snouty. And Dr. Lorne is great. Snouty is great. Oh, Snouty's so good. <laughs> like, yeah, some of the other. Uh, Dickens, who shows up. He's not in it that much, but he's the Lamedosian watchman who teaches them all the song that's so important and also has a few words of wisdom about what you do when another watchman dies. Again, like a character who turns up for a couple of scenes but really leaves a mark. I really liked him. So there are some great new characters, but- if anything, I kind of wanted a bit more of that and for them to be these near misses. Because, yeah, I really like the veterinary thing too. But, yeah, they, they get through that. And then there's a few times in this book where Vimes really pushes it. But he tricks the ferret, who's the, the first one he captures, one of the unmentionables, into spilling his guts about what the unmentionables are up to and where they're headquartered and all that stuff by pretending to torture the two other unmentionables they've captured trying to break in and doing the ginger beer trick. Okay, so is there is that the ginger beer trick or is there an actual ginger beer trick that they are alluding to have done? And also just an extra shout out to the role that ginger plays in this whole yes. book. Yeah, lots of ginger. <laughs> ginger is so up. important. And in a lot, so yeah. There is an actual ginger beer trick. Uh, it okay. doesn't have to be ginger beer. It's any carbonated beverage and it is gross and it's awful. But people used to ask Pratchett this and on, on forums he answered it. But yes, it's a real thing. 
Some places have used this as a torture technique where they've tipped someone's head back and they'd pour any kind of carbonated beverage up somebody's nose into their sinuses. And it's awful. Apparently, it's very, very painful. It makes you feel like you're drowning and it's gross. Uh, So, that is a real thing. But here, the trick is that he doesn't actually do it. He just makes the person think that they're doing it because they buy a Mm. bunch of ginger beer and then take these people off into a shadowy part of the room. They're running around shouting. And I mean, look, that is still torture. Like, I think it's important that we acknowledge that while he doesn't physically hurt anyone, he still psychologically tortures this guy into believing it's going to happen to him, which is pretty- It's not as bad as actually doing it, arguably, but it's still pretty bad. It's that kind of- It's it's very Batman. Again, you know, like, the worst Batman stories are where he gets all his detective work, in inverted commas, done by just beating people up until they tell him what he wants to hear. The best ones are where he actually does detective work. But in the middle, there's sort of these ones where he's always threatening violence, but he doesn't do it. And you're like, yeah, well, that only works if people think you really will. And in order for that to happen, surely you must have beaten somebody up or dropped them off a roof or something. And in this one, I think there's a shade of that that made me- There's a lot of moments in this book that make me borderline a bit uncomfortable about where Vimes goes and Mm. what he thinks is- where he thinks the line is. And, you know, he's under extreme circumstances and in in fiction, we can probably make allowances for that. But it's a bit like the end of The Fifth Elephant where I was a bit like, oh, does he- that's- I feel like he really crosses a line here and I'm not okay with it. I feel like it's kind of like what Nadi was saying, that this is a book about the battle for Sam's soul. And so, we need to see sometimes that there is a part of him that will that will cross a line that isn't completely good, even when he goes down the correct path, because that shows that there's an even darker way he could have gone and is constantly- sort of battling against, because he's not an unambiguously good guy, there are Mm. these moments that show who he could be and who he sometimes is. So I think it's necessary to have those moments. Mm. Yeah, I think that Sam is a very interesting character because he's not just a good cop. He has this kind of spectrum of what he thinks is acceptable under any given circumstance. And we as readers may disagree with that at some point, but I think it does make him ultimately more interesting because he's not like, I feel like someone like Carrot is just like, he's a, he's a good guy. He's straight down the line. Vines is not that at all. He's kind of willing to push boundaries and sometimes maybe he does go too far. And I think there's some, there's some part where he kind of justifies it to himself where he's like, it's because I'm the one doing it, which is yeah. like a very dangerous justification. But. Um, mm-hmm. because it is Vimes and because he, you know, the, the whole book is kind of, um, tracking where, where his kind of sense of morality has come from and, and how these past experiences have shaped him into the person that he is. And so we just, I guess, to a degree have to trust that when he says it's because I'm the one doing it, that we know that he is at heart a good person and that he has, you know, the the public interest at heart, and that's mm. a big part of it too, that he's always distrustful of authority. He's always on the side, not of the people as this kind of amorphous uh, idea that maybe Red Shoe would have, but he's very much grounded in reality. I, th- I feel like he's a very pragmatic person, and most of his choices are around pragmatism rather than idealism. And so that is kind of his moral guiding force. Mm. Yeah. I think that's right. The bit of the story that we're up to discussing, I think, is is one of the crucial moments where the weight of that decision-making and that sort of finding his way between these two paths weighs down on him. Because he's also feeling adrift. Like, as much as he's, you know, there's the beast and there's doing the right thing, but there's also staying here in the past and going back home. 
making a difference or making history go the way it's supposed to and letting people die. Like, all these things are weighing on him and he has this sort of moment where he's like, no, particularly because Captain Tilden is stood down because things are getting wild in the city and they think you're an old man, like you're an old retired soldier that we gave this job to be nice to you, but now we need an actual military man in charge. And they send, in this timeline, the future Lord Rust, who we already hate from his previous- (laughs) appearances in the books. So, seeing him as a young man and knowing he's just as objectionable then is is quite satisfying. But anyway, he um, tries to take the men out on parade to show them what's what as people are erecting their barricades and starting to start a rebellion in the streets. And he eventually knocks out Lord Rust when they find a barricade that's been set up by Red Shoe. But before that moment happens, when he's trying to figure out what to do, this is where he sort of has this breakdown. Where he's like, how do I do this? Like, I remember the way things are supposed to go. What am I supposed to do? And it's at that moment that the monks fulfill a promise they make to him earlier, which is to give him a sign that it's all going to work out okay. Because he tracks them down and goes to their home and says, look, I, I can't do this unless you promise me this is going to work out. And they fulfill that promise by coming through as a parade and leaving him the cigar case that Sybil gave him that he always sort of- found as quite a comfort, which was stolen from him when he arrived in the past. And it's just such a beautiful little moment. And I think a really Mm. lovely acknowledgement of the fact that these stories often just brush aside the idea that, you know, your whole life might change and your history is unraveling and you're experiencing events that were traumatic the first time for the second time. And characters usually just sort of get on with it. Whereas, you know, Vimes has a full on breakdown where he's maybe not going to be able to go on because it's too much. And this one thing allows him to anchor himself. And I just, yeah, I really liked that. Yeah, it's a beautiful moment of like humanity. To counter the nice thing, I enjoyed the joke where they met Red Shoe for the first time. He's like, I, I'm just sad that I only have one life to lay down for this. I'm like, little do you know. <laughs> You know, Reg. Yeah, they kind of establish in this book that he was clearly just always destined to be a zombie. Although it doesn't seem- it's weird because, like, it's not like he's like, yes, and I must live forever. He's just, like, sort of, like, I be- he just believes so hard in his political ideology that that's what's going to bring him back from the dead. And when he's finally on the barricade at the end- we, let's not spoil that moment, actually. We'll get to that at the end because we'll, we'll get through the rest of this relatively quickly because things accelerate- Even though this is only about probably about two thirds the way through the book, this is where a whole bunch of stuff all happens at once. Like once Vimes sort of gets his resolve back, he knocks Vimes out. Sorry, knocks Rust out. Doesn't knock himself out. (laughs) Yet. He knocks Rust out and takes command of the squad and basically says, we're not here to bust up this barricade or arrest these people. We're going to show them how to do it right to make sure that they're safe. And he orders them around and gets them to build the barricade in the right place and sort of centers it around the watch house. And they start taking people in, including a very posh couple. <laughs> just <laughs> The bouquet couple, basically. Is this where it's going to be safe? Bourgeoisie, that sounds very nice. What I does think that you mean? Boy joys. <laughs> yeah, boy joys. <laughs> oh, that was so great. There's real Heisen's bucket like areas there, I thought. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's what she'd be like in a revolution. <laughs> yeah, father's on the barricade already. He's very attached to the armchair. It's going to be an heirloom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's part of a set. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. But there is like the l- weird little things that some people would be thinking about. Like, oh, no, my furniture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want to put that on the pile. <laughs> or, you know, if you do, my dad's asleep in it. So, yeah. Most of the rest of this part of the book is them building the barricades, just defending it either with words or actions. But there is a bit of an aside where Vimes is like, right, you keep setting this up. A few of you come with me. And they go to Cable Street, where the Irregulars headquarters is, very deliberately to free people and burn the place down. 
they find like one of the torturers. So they tie to his own torture chair. They find the clerk and they find the metal ruler that mm. Swing has. And there's that, there's that line. So like a lot of people pick this out as a moment in the book that really stands out to them. But there's a bit where they go around the cells in the torture chambers underneath Cable Street. And the line is just in case and without any feeling of guilt, Vines removed his knife and gave what help he could. And this is referring to people who have sort of gone somewhere in their heads and are probably never coming back because of the things that they've endured. And he's, it's pretty, I mean, it's euphemized, but it's very clearly he's just killing these people because it's like, this is a kindness to you, which is pretty bleak mm-hmm. and dark, but also sort of just is just presented as, but this is the right thing to do. Like there's not really, he doesn't have any quandaries about it. And I think, you know, I mean, we're, I was about to say we're not there. I mean, nobody's there. It's fiction, but, um, <laughs> I don't know how I, I had real conflicting feelings about that scene. I mean, it would depend on like, like if it's like people are about to die and are in a lot of pain. Like if he sort of feels like medically they are not going to survive, there's a difference to, oh, they seem so traumatized that I may as well. Like, cause you can't know that. Like you don't know how someone is going to be one day, one week, one month, one year after an experience like this. So it depends on. Also, like, you can't tell necessarily if someone's going to survive or not. But I think if he was sort of going, okay, these people are so close to death but suffering that it's just making it happen sooner, that's very different to if it's in their minds and that's why he's doing it. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems like it's like a euthanasia rather than a murder, and I think that that is how Vimes would definitely see it. But then, having said that, those people clearly have not asked to die because... They are beyond probably speech at this point. This scene is maybe the darkest scene in any of Pratchett's books that I can remember. And on a, on a purely, um, technical level, like it's so well done because it barely says anything. And yet you have this incredibly clear picture of what it is you're seeing. Like I'm just going to read the description of the room. In this room, there was a big wooden chair. In this room, there was, by the chair, a rack. The chair was bolted to the floor. It had wide leather straps. The rack held clubs and hammers. In this room, that was all the furnishings. Just a handful of things, and you immediately have this oppressive sense of what this room is and what has occurred in this room. And, and, you know, it goes on for the next page or so. And he picks out these details that are so evocative and so horrifying. Yeah, this is the scene that is truly, truly terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's a real good example of show, don't tell, Mm. right? I'm not going to tell you this is a horrifying torture. I'm just going to describe what's in the room and you're going to figure it out for yourself. And it's... Because of the kind of place it is, yeah, really effective and awful. Um, mm. I feel like it's not what you were saying, Liz, you know, if these people are in pain, it's difficult to know. I mean, the way he describes it is like they weren't dead, but they'd gone somewhere and they're sure as hell got nothing to come back to, which kind of implies that like they've been broken physically as well. And like they're probably going to die anyway, but in horrible agony. I think that's what we're meant to think. But I think there's enough ambiguity there that it just didn't quite sit right with me. But I get I get what it's going for, so I don't want to mm. I don't want to harp on it about it too much. But then uh, they go outside, they throw some Molotov cocktails or whatever the Discworld name for those is. There must be one. I don't know what it is. I would love them to be called Stolat cocktails because that's like the least likely. <laughs> <laughs> I think Stolat's the one that's like a birthday Cabbages. greeting. Yeah, it's Happy yeah. Birthday in Polish. Even yeah. better. So good. 
but they throw them at the place to burn it down. And then Vimes remembers, oh, wait, I tied up the torturer in the basement. I should go and at least give him a chance to escape. So he goes in and undoes one strap. And that's when <laughs> finally swing turns up and they have their climactic battle and he ends up like killing him by slitting his throat with, with his a own ruler. ruler. Very satisfying dramatically. Before the climactic battle with Swing, there's just one thing that I wanted to mention, which is mm-hmm. where Vimes does go back inside and Death talks to him briefly. That's right. Is sort of having a conversation with him and then is like, oh, wait, you can't hear me. But for a moment, Death thinks that Vimes might be able to see him, which I just mm. find like quite incredible because that means that Death sees something in Vimes, some kind of like again, this almost supernatural perception that he's like, oh, he might be able to see me. <laughs> he might be able to talk to me, um, which mm. I found quite, like, shocking in a way. Mm. Yeah, and it's something that comes back in the next watchbook, Thud, where death has a near Vimes experience, as he puts it. <laughs> and you get the imp- I mean, the way that that scene goes, like, he's sort of implying that I've nearly met you so many times and now we're speaking, but I don't know if this is it either. <laughs> and this is clearly one of those times. That was, I'd forgotten that until I read it again. That was, Mm. that was quite a delight. Cause death, uh, it's by this point in the books, like death still turns up in everyone, but often it's only like one scene. And in this one, he's in it twice. He's doing a rock star shift. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's just like, I'm just doing a tour through the book. (laughs) Um, but yeah, they burn the place down. They've got rid of the regulars and they head back to the barricades. They sort of expand them. He says to Colin, push them forward. He takes that a bit too far and they end up like encompassing like a third of the city or something behind the barricades. And uh, he goes through the logical sort of thinking of like, yeah, but if we push them far enough, there'll be more of the city behind the barricades. (laughs) So we'll be in charge. You're like, that makes sense, actually. Meanwhile, this is making the military feel like they're clearly not in charge of the situation. And Casa turns up as now de facto head of the unmentionables and is kind of like, you can't let them do this. You've got to push these people. Like, you have to be in charge and kind of tries to push them to help him. And by a combination of kind of egging them on, bullying them, and also saying, but I'm an official government person and you have to give me help if I ask for it. So, he's kind of really using all the levers at his disposal to make things worse. Um, presumably because he's just getting to enjoy killing people in what seems like an official capacity. Because at one point, Nobby's there and he just goes, what's this in my pocket? Oh, it's someone's <laughs> yeah, ear. Yeah, it's still like, warm. Oh, it's gross. <laughs> what an, what an And Nobby is person. delighted by it, of course. <laughs> yeah. But this is kind of where it ends up being that the rioting in the city helps out with the plan in the palace because there's a party going on at the palace this whole time. Very let the meat cake kind of business. Uh, but Which also comes back. It does, it does. But um, the soldiers eventually sort of petition the lords at the party for assistance. And that's when one of the lords who we've met before, I think it's Salachi, although we usually meet Lady Salachi, who's presumably his daughter or his wife, who outlives him. But he goes, we'll take care of this. I'll just bring all the palace guards. We don't need them here. We already caught the assassin that was trying to kill Lord Winder tonight. We'll just go into and takes all the guards away so there's not as many guards. And that is one of the things that gives Veterinary his chance to sneak in in the wake of the assassin who was officially hired to do the job that evening. Which means he's like, he's on an unofficial job. I don't know how legal that is by Assassin's Guild rules. He's clearly breaking the rules. He's not really mentally in the Assassin's Guild. And you see him like having that whole thing where he's like in the admin office asking for time out to go have a look. And he Mm. like clocks who's going to be doing the attempt. Like, so it's all... 
part of like a bigger thing. Like I think it's like we were talking about earlier. He's playing a long game mm. and it's not really about what the Assassin's Guild allow or want or need. It's what's going to affect the bigger picture. What's best for the city. What's yeah. best for him as well. Like I don't necessarily see Veterinari as being motivated by care for the city in the first instance. Like I feel like he is the kind of person who will serve his own ends first and if mm. it helps the city, that's fine. And we're just lucky that, that they align. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Put that your own sense. mask on before helping others. <laughs> <laughs> that's good life advice. <laughs> before we get on to the murder, though, it's, I mean, the party, I think, is worth a mention because this is where we see Madame Roberta's, like, wheeling and dealing and there's that great description of if you were looking at it from above it would be like these sort of weird dots moving around as she like isolates all the people who support lord winder and makes sure they're nowhere near him and are surrounded by people who don't support lord winder and are talking them out of it it's very yeah it's, teamwork yeah Mm. And such a beautiful way to describe it because you get this kind of like bird's eye view that is so evocative and, like, you can just immediately picture it rather than just kind of describing people talking to each other. Mm. And it's very cinematic, like, his, mm. his thing of the cinematic stuff. Yeah. But it means that Winder's also just standing by himself when they wheel in his cake. I mean, I guess that's somewhat normal, though. Yeah, I guess that's true. He wouldn't want too many people being close to him anyway. He's that mm. paranoid. Plus, you've got to see the person from the, like, you can't be, like, next to them singing Happy Birthday directly at their ear because that's deeply embarrassing for everyone. Do you think they do? Do they sing Happy Birthday to him, do you think? And it's just, like, if you were going to, I don't know if they, they would sing. Is Happy Birthday a thing there? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. I assume they have an equivalent. I'd probably just say Stow, Stow Lit. <laughs> But then, yeah, it, as he's sort of got the cake, that's when Vetinari just comes in and he, like, kills the last two guards who were there and just walks towards him, very Assassin's Creed style, <laughs> you know, clad in black, got these little daggers. And that's when he says, who are you? And he says, I am your future. And he doesn't even get to stab him. He just dies of a heart attack because he's too scared that, oh, no, all my defences have failed. I'm going to die. But, like, probably that was his strategy because, like, veterinary prepares. He knows his mm. quarry. That's true. He didn't even have to touch him. I didn't violate any guild contracts. Well, yeah. I didn't kill him. Exactly. He just died. It actually turns out the veterinary hasn't broken any rules because he technically didn't kill anyone. Well, mm. the he caused that- someone's death. Yeah, that's true. And also no one knows it was him. Yes. No. Um, apart from his aunt and... And because I actually, I think no one knows that it was him apart from his aunt. Like he doesn't speak to anyone else in the rebellion. He's wearing a mask when he comes in to do it. Yeah, I think he's totally anonymous. 3D chess though, like because it's just in case he's got himself covered. Yeah, because I think also as a student, he's not allowed to go on jobs yet. From memory, in pyramids, Tepic gets all the way to graduation and he's never killed anyone. And he doesn't want to. He knows how to, mm. but he hasn't done it. Um, and I think I think that's the same case with Vetinari. Like. Until this, I mean, he's quite happy to kill people. He kills two guards, and later on, he fights in the in the scuffle at the end and kills like quite a few of them. Oh. But yeah, I guess it's like in a finishing school. You know how to marry a rich man, but you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but when the opportunity presents itself, you're ready, <laughs> and you do it without hesitation. <laughs> so that happens, and they almost instantly replace Winder with Lord Snapcase. And they think, oh, great, this is good. And they're like, oh, yeah, and Keel's been instrumental in sort of like leading people and looking after people, making sure people don't die. And he's like, yeah, sounds like he's really a take charge kind of guy. Mm. I think we should promote him to glory 
by which I mean kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, okay. But and there's, there's an that green bit where they all leave, including um the lawyer zombie guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they leave Lord Snapcase's office and he says in Latin, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. boss. <laughs> yeah, he's going to send not just anybody, he's going to send Casa because Casa's now risen from the ranks of unmentionables into the palace guard. He sends Casa and a bunch of palace guards and other people to kill Keel, make sure he's not a threat to his new rule. I'm sorry, like this, the, you've said kill Keel a few times. I'm like, oh, Quentin Tarantino's kill Keel. Like, <laughs> 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 oh, no. <laughs> That's an adaptation I'd like to see. I would watch oh. the heck out of that. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I can see it happening. I think we can rattle here through to the end because yeah. it, it all kind of happens quite quickly now. But, yeah, they're still fighting on the barricades. Then they hear word that the leader has changed at the top and they managed to talk them down. I mean, during the big fighting, that's when the military bring out the big guns. They bring, like, a siege weapon drawn by oxen and that's the other use of ginger, ginger. we talked about. <laughs> they sneak out there and stick some ginger up a Which is oxes. foreshadowed. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, early on in the book. It's a ginger trick. I mean, I, I am a ginger. I don't feel like I know any of these ginger tricks. Oh, no, don't, don't associate with these gingers. <laughs> these are different right. gingers. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get used for any of this sort of nonsense. But, yeah, they sort that out. They managed to survive. They talk the soldiers into a truce by explaining that we're the legit ones now. Your, <laughs> your orders came from someone who's been deposed. <laughs> and they count the casualties. And only five people have died, which, considering, you know, the size of the barricades and what forces they're up against is quite amazing. Mm. One of them being a watchman. Nancy Ball. And one of them having accidentally, you know, slit his own throat with his whatever he's fighting with. Because a lot of the people on the barricades who wanted to fight were just regular folks with, like, fish hooks and butcher's equipment and stuff, and it's dangerous. And that's when Dickens sort of explains, and this is echoing something at the start of the book when Cassus killed the dwarf watchman, when Vimes is, like, remembering what Dickens taught him. is like, you pass the hat around, you make sure that they're paid for, and you look after them, even when they're dead, and Dickens tells him this. But Cassus sort of on his way there. Feel, they sense them coming, and they're like, shit, we've got to get out of here. And they go and hide. Like, they go through a shop. <laughs> the knitting shop. And make their <laughs> escape, and then go back to the watch house to shore up. And Casa tells everyone in his squad that whatever you want to do to everyone else, that's fine, but you bring me Vimes and Keel alive. It's clear he wants to do something awful to them. Some looper stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. And one of the people in Casa's gang is Ned Coates, who was a watchman who was suspicious because he was sure Keel was dead, and he knew that whoever Vimes was, he wasn't really John Keel, and he suspected he was an anti-revolutionary because he was part of the rebellion plot. And he's ended up in Casa's squad, and you think he's turned on Vimes totally because he tells Casa where to go to find him, which is back to the watch house. But then when they get to the watch house, there's this whole ambush with, like, half of the men in a cart, and they sort of surround Casa's mob, and they spring on them and have a big fight, and they manage to cut many of them down. And Ned turns back to Vimes' side, kills a bunch of Casa's guys, and says, who are you really? And they have this nice little exchange, and there's that bit where- <laughs> Where he says, what is your deal? And Vimes says, look, all right, fine. I'll just tell you, I fell through time from a different part of history. And Ned looks at him and he goes, from how far back? <laughs> he thinks he's from the past because he's just been really violent. <laughs> but they have the big fight. And because Cass's force is like a mixture of watchmen and guards and other people, it's hard to tell who's who. Dickens is the one who has the idea. Well, I heard this story once about these soldiers in a field who were all covered in mud. And to make sure that they didn't accidentally kill someone on their own side, they all grabbed carrots and stuck them on their hats. We don't have carrots, but mm. there's this lilac. Mm. 
let's wear that. And that's where that comes from. I don't know if that's a real bit of history, but I know it's certainly a story that's told about history in our world, which, yeah, I thought was kind of a really lovely moment. Um, and then they have the big fight. Although just before they get into the big fight, the monks stop time and let Vimes know, this is it. This is the moment. We've, we're prepared for this. We've got Kills' body here. So what you've got to do is grab Casa and we'll send you back and we'll pause time and we'll replace you with Kill's body and everyone will just think you got killed. What happened to Casa though in that timeline? Yeah, that's a great question because presumably at this point people know that he was there because he's like risen through the ranks at an unprecedented rate. He's dealt with lords and he's part of the palace guard at this point and then he just disappears. Mm. I mean, I guess maybe they just all assume that somehow in the fighting he either slipped away or his body has been lost. Yeah. 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 And I guess, you know, 30 years later, a lot of people died or went missing at that time. So I think, I think that kind of makes sense. Well, I mean, it makes sense that it's not until Vimes goes back that anybody notices any of these things line up, because, of course, until he's been into the past and changed things and come back, they didn't line up. They hadn't happened. But, yeah, he he does it. He manages to have the fight. He knocks himself out, as we talked about earlier, um, to keep himself out of it. And they get into the fight. He grabs Casa and they vanish. He goes back to the university. But they warned him that they probably wouldn't end up in the same place. And that indeed is true because we don't actually find out exactly where Vimes turns up, I don't think, but he's back at the university and he remembers something that Casa said when they were originally on the roof, which is, I can yeah. see your house from here. And he's like, hold on, he's going to attack Sybil. And so he's like insistent that people go there to protect them. And he tries to get a lift off Ridcully, but he's too impatient to explain why he needs it. So he just runs home in the nude because again, <laughs> his clothes didn't go with him. He gets home. Sybil's in trouble in the pregnancy, so he gets Ridcully to take him on his broom to go and fetch Dr. Lorne. Ouch. Um, and promises him, you know, great wealth and, and anything he wants if he can make sure she survives and everything's okay, which he does. He would have done it anyway. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, Vimes is a man of his word, but he didn't- I don't think he had to promise him, like, no. a million dollars. <laughs> like, he just had to say, my wife's going to die. Can you come and help me? I'll pay you for your time. But it's nice. It works out. Yeah. It's good. It's for the greater good, but I just feel like he didn't need to, but it's good that yeah. he did. And then, and then we get to the last scene. Vimes goes to the cemetery where Colin and Nobby were at the start, where the people who died on the glorious 25th of May are buried. And we find out exactly who they were, even though you've, like, suspected and you know some of them, and I find that's just so upsetting. Like, mm. Yeah. The Count Reg, even though he doesn't die in that battle, he died on the barricades earlier. Yeah. And a great sort of, you know, Boromir in Lord of the Rings <laughs> gets peppered with arrows but doesn't die for a while kind of way. It allows him to have that great joke of him coming and maintaining his own grave and it really annoying the, <laughs> the people at Small Gods. <laughs> yeah. Because I think it's, is it seven of them in the end? I'll find the page. Oh, here we go. John Keel, Billy Wiglet, Horace Nancy Ball, Di Dickens, Cecil Snouty Clapman, Ned Coates, and technically Red Shoe. Yeah. Snouty as well. Yeah, so I guess it's all of the Watch members who died. Yeah. Plus Reg. It is upsetting. But what's more upsetting is that, you know, as well as placing the lilac and the flowers on the grave, they always put like an egg mm. on John Keel's grave because he's the one who says, I want a hard-boiled Probably. egg. Which inadvertently starts off the whole siege because he throws it up in the air and people think that it's a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and I like that, you know, and this has become that because it's on the it's in the blurb, um, that people shout it out as part of the slogan, but they never do that in the book. <laughs> like they're trying to work out what the slogan should be. And Vimes as Keel just says, I, I quite like a hard boiled egg. egg. 
It was very funny, that scene. I like that. But yeah, he notices the egg that's on the grave has been smashed. And as he bends down to check it out, that's when he realizes Caster is there, who springs out of the darkness. And they have a pretty brutal fight back and forth. Vimes gets the upper hand and Caster basically goads him. He's like going, oh, you're not going to kill me, though. You're not going to kill me. And Vimes gets really angry and thinks about it. But then he's like, no, I'm not. That's another time when he sort of feels that weight of his younger self watching him from 30 years in the past. He's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. And he captures him. At which point, as he's tying Casa up, Vetnari steps out of the shadows. <laughs> he's been there the whole time. Just watching. <laughs> so good. So good. And kind of reveals that he's worked out. Without saying it explicitly, kind of says, yeah. And it's also nice because at the start, like, it's a nice sort of callback. Colin's so objectionable about anyone wearing the lilac who wasn't there. And Vetnari is wearing it and no one ever says anything. Hmm. And I think Vimes clocks it and is like, he always wears that. That's a bit weird. But we're not going to say anything to him. He's the patrician. And then he reveals, no, well, I was there. I went back to try and save you. And I killed like three of them. I think it made a difference. And then I saw Casa vanish and I inspected Kiel's body. And I was like, these wounds look a bit old. And now I'm seeing you tonight and you've got this scar over your eye. I've worked it out. And they also have a discussion about whether they're going to put like a big statue up to these men. Because the, the graves were getting a bit, like, forgotten about except by this handful of guys. Yeah, and the current person running the cemetery wants to get rid of them because they're old. So only 30 years. Like, get a grip. Like, usually they give you, like, 50 years even in cemeteries with that kind of turnover. See, but- I knew you would know this. <laughs> you wrote that great piece on cemeteries, Liz. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. But, um, yeah, 30 years is not enough to be like, no, no, that's, yeah. I mean, mm. Yeah, they must have more than one cemetery in Ankh-Morpork, right? It's a city yeah, of a million people. There would yeah. be so many. In fact, I think they talk about it because the small god cemetery is for people who don't have a religious affiliation. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and it's full. Much? I mean, they do establish that it's full mm. and that they keep digging people up and putting them in the um, catacomb underneath just as their bones. Yeah, he's got a nice spot for you, Victor. You, <laughs> yeah. Even though it's you're not all together, it's um, one of those like beautiful uh, catacombs where they do art. I think like well, I was imagining one of those like really beautiful ones where they it's artistic with all the bones. But again, it, it's kind of like a communal experience of death rather than the individual marking of lives, yeah. which is different. Yeah. So you don't imagine faces, but you imagine catacombs. Is this what we're getting out of this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Don't need to know what any of the characters look like, but I mean, bones on the other bones, hand. Bones, bones, bones. You don't need to know what they look like while they're alive. When they're dead, oh, I can picture exactly. Rib goes here, and it's just a whole hall of skulls. It's just great. <laughs> but yeah, they have this discussion about should we put up a statue? And Vimes is like incensed. It's like, no, don't you dare. Like, that's not what this is about. And then the patrician makes him this very generous offer. It's quite touching. He's like, look, I'll give you back Treacle Mine Road, the original watch house, which, as we know, is destroyed towards the end of the first watch book, Guards, Guards. It gets burned to nothing by a dragon, and then Lady Sybil donates Pseudopolis Yard as their new headquarters. But they're like, yeah, you can rebuild it, and you can have a watch house there again in memory of John Keel and the other men. And it's quite lovely. Yeah. And then Vimes goes home after sticking Caster in the jail. And throwing a cigar butt into the monk's garden, which was previously established something that they hate people doing. <laughs> <laughs> he becomes part of the pattern and then they comment on that. So, like, it's, it's you know, but also funny. And that's, uh, that's Nightwatch. I mean, look, I feel like the plot is relatively simple, apart from some of the machinations of the characters. But also, there's, it's pretty deep in that a lot of stuff happens. So, we've sort of glossed over a few things, as we always have to do with these longer books. But are there any bits that anyone really wants to bring up or any quotes they want to read out that 
we didn't get to in the discussion. The seamstress living with the needle lady and how they have that knock at the door and Rosie's like, oh, this one's for you. And it's an old man with a whole bunch of socks. And he's like, since my (laughs) wife died, I haven't been able to darn these holes. So could you please do it? And I, I think about that quite often. And it's, I don't know, it's, it gets me in a weird place. It's just sort of, it's just really nice. It's and horrible yeah. and sad. very touching, but it's also like especially good because it's set up so that you think that he's talking about coming to a sex worker for sex, but then he's like, no, I just want my <laughs> socks done. Yeah, I just can't do this by myself. <laughs> yeah, it's done cute. just so well. But yeah. Yeah. I did really like, he's only in it briefly, the librarian, this book, but there's a great footnote about him being an orangutan and the fact that Originally, the thing that happened was people forgot he used to be a human, and now they're forgetting that he's an orangutan, and they're just treating him like he's just a regular person, which I thought was very cute. Yeah, that was fun. I just want to drop in a quick footnote about how few footnotes there were in a book that was arguably one of his longest. So, footnotes that were there, good on you, but everyone else, I'm sorry you couldn't join in. This is one of the more quotable Discord. I mean, they've all got good quotable bits in them, but there's some really good lines there's one bit where Ned Coates, the watchman who's part of the rebellion, is complaining about people attacking the watch, the watch houses. And what's the night watch ever done to hurt them? Nothing, said Vimes. There you are then. I mean, the watch did nothing, and that's what hurt them, said Vimes. Mm. Ooh, yeah. There's a sneaky Pink Floyd reference. Ooh. Oh, yes, the dark sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> um when they don't get his dark sarcasm, he's like, oh, it should be taught in schools. Oh, and when you meet Snouty, the man was standing very close to the bars with the grin of one who mistakenly thinks he's a wit when he's only half a one. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah. The one other one that I remembered particularly was the great bit about patriotism, which is after Cass has been to see the military commanders who are supposed to be putting down the unrest in the city. They're talking about someone up in the palace. They're the sort of people who, like, wave flags and sing the national anthem just to show they're patriotic. Would you ever do this? No, that'd be weird. <laughs> like, yeah, that would be weird. He's like, yeah, on a special occasion, sure, but not just at home. <laughs> One of my kind of laugh out loud quotes was actually when they're talking about the crypt in the small god cemetery when Fred's kind of like thinking about who gets buried there and it says if some of the religions were right and there really was bodily resurrection one day Fred mused there was going to be an awful lot of confusion and milling about because all of the bones are just higgledy wiggledy together (laughs) yeah yeah oh makes me laugh that's so good that's funny we should get into the questions because we got a ton of listener questions. Um, yep. Liz, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so we got so many great questions. We will not be able to do all of them. And some of them we did cover a little bit in the discussion already. Like we talked a bit about this one from Aaron Dick via Facebook. Do you think all the meet the same characters in the past while they all know each other stuff is a bit overdone in this book? I thought it was a little bit. No, I want more. Some of it's great and some of it is maybe a bit much. What do you think? Did you see you wanted more, Liz? More. As much as possible. Everyone meeting everyone. Everyone who's ever been in a Pratchett book in this book. Like, just all of them. The witches coming past at some point. Young Nanny Og coming in to have a date with someone. Just just give all of it. All of it in here. A Silmarillion of this where you just see all of that stuff. I do think they don't all know each other, which I quite liked. Vimes, of course, knows all of them because he's from the future. 
but they don't all know him and they don't all know young him. And in fact, young him meets hardly any of them. The Watchman, basically, doesn't meet anybody else. So I think from that perspective, it's not so bad. All right. So this question comes from Lego Ank Morpork via Twitter. Nightwatch is widely considered to be Sir Terry Pratchett's masterpiece. Considering the sheer amount of competition it has, what do you think it has that makes it stand out from the rest of the Discworld series? That's a good question. And we had a related question from Paul Patiki on Twitter who said, you know, why is this book in everyone else's top five but in my bottom five? Ooh, oh. inter- I'd love to hear the reasoning, actually. I'd be keen yeah, to hear I'd more. To, yeah, Paul, please tweet us and tell us more about why you don't like it. Because there's no wrong answers. It's personal taste. Yeah. I mean, look, and I think I said, you know, I said right at the start, I, I do like this book a lot, but it's not my favourite. It would be up there for me. I don't know if it would be my absolute favourite or even in my top five like there's just so many different books to like for so many different reasons do you think it's the peak of the watch series or do you think there's another watch book that for you is maybe better than this one it's hard to articulate because i just think best is really a hard way mm. to rank things i don't think there is a best and it's sure. about favorite Fa- favorite then yeah favorite. and i think this one as a watch like someone who has loved the watch all along it feels like kind of a reward in some ways because there is all that overlap. Like I personally love time travel stories and the fact Mm -hmm. that this is a time travel story that works in so many characters that I've gotten to know over such a long period of time. It just feels like it's not fan service, but it just feels like there's a real payoff that you often don't get from series because you get everyone cast in a new light. You get some context. You don't always get to see like characters being themselves in a completely different timeline. You get flashbacks and things. So like it offers up something different and in some ways rare because like time travel stories, there's lots of those, but often like even back to the future, which I also love, like you get a bit of that because you get to know like the parents a little bit when they're older, but it would be as though there was a whole series about Marty's parents that you'd like watch beforehand. Then you get to see them young and all the different ways it could have turned out. I think there's more emotional investment in the characters than you often get. And perhaps that's why it is one of my favorites because it is just a great read, but you care about everyone to a greater depth than you would in a book that was about all new characters that had the same plot. Yeah, I feel like it's a book that is very rewarding to fans and specifically to fans of The Night Watch specifically. I think I really love this book because it is so morally complex in a way that perhaps some of the other books aren't. It has a lot of darkness in it. It has a lot of choices that Sam has to make that, as we've seen in this discussion, are questionable. And I think that for that reason, it's really interesting as well. Like, not only is it a great story, not only do you have these characters that you love and you're seeing them in new lights, but also it calls upon your moral values and and maybe asks, like, what would I do in this situation? Mm. Yeah. Mm. What do you What do you think the central quandary is there from a moral perspective? Because I think, for me, one of the things that Pratchett does well often is to demonstrate the principle that it's not really moralistic or it's not really ethical unless you, you're doing the right thing and it costs you something. Like, if you're doing the right thing is easy, that doesn't mean anything. You could be just doing it for convenience. But if you're doing the right thing and it's hard. And I think you're right that Vines has to face some difficult choices here, but I think he doesn't really pay for them in a way. Like, he gets everything that he wants, he gets to go home, he gets to save people, and he gets to preserve history. And I'm not saying that there isn't a cost, but I'm just sort of interested in mm. what what is that, though? What is the... Yeah, I mean, but I think that even though he does ultimately get everything that he wants, like, the stakes are extremely high for him. Like, he, mm. he stands to lose his wife, his child, his whole future. Um, yeah. So, you know, it could just as easily have gone another way and he could have lost everything that he had. Mm. Um, 
there's this whole thesis that Pratchett has that's like what people do matters mm. and these kind of actions of this small group of people have huge ramifications, not just in the life of Sam Vimes, but actually in the life of the whole city because Sam takes the path that he takes. He reforms the watch. Basically, he kind of, well, between him and Vetinari, they kind of usher in this new version of Ankh-Morpork that is much more open to having werewolves in the watch and, like, welcoming the dwarves into the city and, and all of this kind of stuff. Like, this book takes us back into the bad old days of Ankh-Morpork where the city is, is a much worse version of itself. And so we see the effect that Vimes and Vetinari and probably a whole lot of other people have had in, in building Ankh-Morpork into what it has become. Yeah. No, well, that makes sense. And I mean, and we talked before about he's got to go in between those two goals of making things better now in the past or allowing history to go on its track so that things can be better in the future. So, yeah, yeah, good you mean. Totally. Hmm. All right. So Zoe from Discord sent us two questions and one we've covered a little bit already. Um, it's a great one. Despite Nightwatch being one of my favorite books and despite the way that Pratchett shows what good cops versus bad cops are, in today's world, especially someone living in the United States, how do you separate Nightwatch and the other watch books from copaganda? So like Brooklyn Nine-Nine is another example of beloved cop propaganda, but any procedural show could be an example. So we've mm, covered it a yeah. bit, but there's like a different angle to that. And then- yeah, I, I thought about this a lot while reading this book in that for Sam Vimes, what he says a good policeman does is, again, it's kind of what we hope that institution is for, which is protecting people. But then I think the question that has sort of advanced these movements is, that, well, who are they really protecting? Because that protection is not applied equally and evenly and fairly. And Vimes clearly always has this idea that he's protecting the regular people. He's not interested in protecting the wealthy. Like, they're already protected. They have security measures and they have all of these wealthy luxuries that means their lives are a lot easier. Whereas he's like, I'm not interested in that. I want to protect the regular people. The answer to this question got long and veered quite off topic. Vimes being a perfect copper doesn't address the problems we're currently grappling with about the very idea of a police force. On reflection though, what might save the watchbooks from being too squarely propaganda is that Vimes and most of his officers also ask questions about the very role of the watch and how to make sure it doesn't slide back into the bad old days. Vimes' own boots theory shows he has a deep understanding of the kind of systemic bias which police forces do nothing to fix, though his record on race is somewhat more complicated. And there are also glimpses in Nightwatch of his extremely dim view of how the old watch failed the people. In his own time, he stands up to Vetinari to affirm the role of the watch as answering not to the patrician, but to the people. And in this book, we learn there's now a committee who oversee the watch. Finally, the watch does also seem pretty deeply rooted in an older British idea of what police officers are supposed to be, which is quite different from what you see in the US. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. But as you'll hear next, that doesn't mean the problems we see in modern policing haven't crept into the watch stories. I mean, because I think if you look at it from a certain angle, you could argue that there are signs of the militarization of the Night Watch because, you know, you have Detritus and his siege crossbow, <laughs> which is military equipment. Like, there's no question about that. I mean, it's never used to attack civilians. And, you know, at several points in the books, Vimes rails against the use of the term civilian in a police context. I mean, it comes up in this book. He's like, we're not 
military. And mm. he explicitly says in this book too, you know, our allegiance is not to the people in power. It is to the city and the population of the city. And I think the problem there that leaves open is that that's open to interpretation, what that means. And therefore, you know, while he might not have to do what the king or the patrician wants him to do, how he interprets what's best for who, which people is still, you know, and you see that in the corruption of the day watch in the old watch here before Kiel comes along. You know, they're serving the people who have money and power already. Um, and Vimes is making a conscious effort to turn it away from that. I think the thing that's missing is, you know, what are the procedures and what are the checks and balances that stop that from going the other way? Those problems do exist in the UK. They're different in character a bit from the problems in the US and different again from the problems we have here in Australia. Mm. I mean, a lot of them are to do with racism and other forms of systemic oppression, but I think it's viewed very differently. And they have a very different romantic view of what the policeman is. Like, they're not someone who goes out and shoots bad guys in the UK. But there's a very- di- Like, certainly traditionally, like, if you watch the bill- Yeah. That's mm. not what happens in the bill, right? Uh, in the bill, Except it's Except for like, the one who goes rogue that time, you know. Oh, like, yeah. he shoots another policeman. Yeah. I mean, you don't see modern police dramas in the UK that are like the bill. Mm. Like, there hasn't been something that's filled that same place. Like, the kinds of ones you get now are about homicide detectives and murderers. So, it's a bit different now. Maybe in the UK. I don't know. Look, we could speculate about this a lot, but it's a really good question and one that I don't know that we have a good answer for. But I think it is a bit different because it comes from a different sensibility. Next question is from Molokov via Discord. What do you imagine the backstory of Lady Roberta Meserol is and how much influence did she have on veterinary's upbringing? Mm. Because she's a very interesting character who we never see again and we've never seen before. Mm. And she sort of touches this book and then, yeah. But she's a puppeteer. That's like her thing. She's quietly in the background with... We get to see her pulling the strings here, but I mean, that's her. I don't know. Like it's because like mysterious characters are mysterious. It's hard to imagine, you know, <laughs> did she strategically marry so that she had a lot of money and a title early on so that she could pull strings? Is she part of like a bigger group? Is she looking after business interests only? Does she have a big moral compass? Did she secretly go to the assassin school dressed as a boy and learn all the skills? Like it's just like there's so many ways her origin story could play out. One thing that occurred to me is that it's so harped upon that she's his aunt that it almost calls into question if she's really his aunt or if she's <laughs> something else. Like when I read it, I was like, is she like actually his mother or something? Or like, mm. what is the relationship here? The whole aunt thing seemed like it was almost too emphasized to me. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Cause he does always have. Like, he's got, like, later that romantic attachment, but not quite to another, like, powerful lady in, like, Uberfold, isn't it? Like, oh, a vampire. Lady Margalotta. Yeah, yeah. So, like, maybe that's his type. Who he meets in his youth. Yeah. So, presumably on his um, Bruce Wayne-esque trip around the world. <laughs> um, I like that it is ambiguous. I mean, you also never see him and her interacting with other people. Every time they're together, it's just the two of them, which mm. I think is quite interesting which makes that relationship something of a secret. Like, maybe even if she is his real aunt, nobody knows that. Mm. Um, It's nice that there's some subtle influences that you can infer. Like, he says here he really doesn't like her old farty cat, (laughs) but then the modern-day patrician has an old farty dog. (laughs) And you're like, "Mm, is that her influence? (laughs) Um, But also, you obviously get some of his political savvy either from her or learned from her or they have that in common. I I kind of agree with you a bit, Liz. I like it when a mysterious character is left mysterious. And I think the holes this leaves in Vetinari's life are also quite satisfying. Mm. 
All right, so next question comes from Peter via email. While it was obviously a Vimes novel, it didn't necessarily have to be Vimes that went back in time. How do you think the book would have gone if the monks or Pratchett had sent a different character back in time, so like Carrot or Veterinary or, which I would have loved, Lady Sybil? That's an interesting one. They're all interesting, but I'm just like, I had never even Mm. thought about that. What if it had been the patrician who went back in time? Yeah. <laughs> there would have been so many murders. Like, she mentioned two, two veterinaries. It would have been, like, so efficient. He would have, I reckon he would have left notes for his younger self. Yeah. You know? He's probably planned for this contingency already. Like, he would have, like, okay, like, if I travel in time, I've got these different things. He's probably got stash bags around the city. Yeah. Like he's, he's probably he's already planned. left notes for himself, like, for when he goes back in time. <laughs> Very good. It would just been a very efficient book in which not very much would have happened in between <laughs> all the things that absolutely need to happen. I think this is a really good question because we're at the point now in the watch books where they just become increasingly more about Vimes. I think one of the reasons this isn't my favourite book and, and also one of the reasons it's not my favourite watch book even, I think that's probably Feet of Clay or maybe The Fifth Elephant. I really love those two. But is that it's not really a watch book, it's a Vimes book. I just want to quickly tack on a question from Alex via Facebook, um, which I think is related to this. Nightwatch gives us the younger days of Vimes and a select group of other Ankh-Morporkian characters, um, and we get to learn about a younger version of Granny Weatherwax and Lords and Ladies. Are there any other characters you'd have liked to see in their younger years? I feel like we can answer these both with this. It's like, who would you like to see sent back, yeah. and who would you like to see more of younger? Yeah. I don't want to see necessarily other members of the Watch in their younger days. Like Who's left? Carrot and, <laughs> oh, yeah, and right. Angwer. I mean, I kind of feel like if it's going to time travel book with a watch, like it's it's maybe an excuse to meet Cuddy again. Mm. Although he's only a watchman for such a short period of time before he dies that it's that would be upsetting probably. <laughs> but some of the longer lived characters that could be interesting. I mean, you get a glimpse of Mr. Slant, the zombie lawyer whose name I couldn't remember earlier in this book. I don't know who else do you want to see young. I mean, some of the wizards for sure. Mm. I would like to see a book where. Moist von Lipwig has to travel back in time as well as getting some glimpses of his, um, real con artist days. Cause I think that, like, I like not having a solid, like, book about all of his stuff, but I think just a few more looks at his scans when he was a full con artist would have been oh. quite fun. I would, if he had gone back, like, in a similar way and the book was totally not about him meeting himself, but then just at one point in the book, he comes across himself as an alias he forgot he had. <laughs> and he's like, oh shit, that's me. <laughs> I'm conning these people. And he just sort of has to diffuse that without disrupting history and also has all this guilt about how much he used to rip people off. I think that would be cool. Yeah. But the book's not totally about that. That'd be great. How about you, Nadia? What do you reckon? Not in a time travel sense, but I would love a book about young Vedinari, like a whole book of that. I, As much as I like that his character is mysterious, I could read several books on Vedinari mm-hmm. and not get bored. Like an Enid Blyton series, but <laughs> <Yeah>. about- <laughs> Well, enough time has passed. I think you could still, like this book, you could still leave a real nice gap. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, but I would love to see more young Nanny Og. Oh. That would be hilarious. That, that's <laughs> and just, very censored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It wouldn't be much of a book. It would just be like all blacked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also young, young Mushroom Ridcully, I think would be fun. And maybe young, like maybe all the faculty of wizards, like when they were students, like that could be a fun time. <laughs> the Bursa. Like all of the oh. senior wizards when they were students, like the kind of non-student nonsense they'd get up to. Because there's a couple of times where they regress in the books in one way or another. But actually seeing their youth in in the school, that could be fun. Yeah, I, I agree. The Bursa especially would be fun to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, 
as but a what teenager. But um, what about if Lady Sybil went back in time, though? I think we should answer that aspect mm. of the question because she's such a big presence in the first watch book and then she kind of vanishes for a couple of books and then in Fifth Elephant she's got a lot to do and then in this one she's totally just off having, having a, baby. a baby, which is fair enough. She's busy, you know. <laughs> um, but then she only comes back a bit in the later ones. So it would be more screen time for her. Yeah, I would definitely have liked to see that. Um, mm. I would like to see her take a main role in a book. Mm. And we're just seeing different aspects of, because like, she wouldn't have been doing it like the watch way. She'd have had to like navigate her like fancy toff family and friends and things, plus like some of the diplomatic side of things. So it would have been a very, it would be a nice complimentary book almost, but like an alternative version of the same events where Sybil had gone back and said that would be quite. I mean, and I realized that was exactly what the question was, and I like reproposed that as though it was my own idea, which it is not. But yeah. <laughs> All right, next question from Sven via Discord. He's saying how much he loves this cover. How much do you judge a book by its cover? Are we talking in general or Terry Pratchett books specifically? Well, I think he's talking in general, mm. but I, it, somebody else did also point out that this is the point, and we talked about this in a previous episode, but this is where Paul Kidby takes over doing the covers. Mm. And they are, as another listener, Jonas pointed out on Facebook, a lot of his covers are pastiches of or, or parodies of famous works of art. So they're not always entirely new original pieces of art so in that sense. But, um, but yeah, it is a very different direction. And then we've also seen since then, we've seen some really different styles of covers for the Discworld books as well. But yeah, do, how, how does that influence whether you're going to read a book or not? Can I just quickly say, um, one time I was just doing that thing where you channel surf because you're, you're not doing anything and there was a documentary about art and they showed the original Nightwatch painting, mm. nothing to do with Terry Pratchett. And I was like, I hadn't put it together at that point. I was like, oh, that looks just like that Terry Pratchett cover. I found out that when one of the galleries was putting up this work, which is huge apparently, like it takes up like a whole wall, or actually what it takes up is more than a wall, and they're like, this doesn't fit, so they just slice like a foot off it, which is horrifying. Like who who runs a gallery and is like, mm, this art's a little bit big, let's just cut some of it off. Like, really? Was it a print or was it an original? It was the original. I thought it was maybe a private owner at that point who cut uh. it up rather than a gallery. I could be wrong. I've actually seen the painting in real life when I was in Amsterdam and went to the Rijksmuseum and it is extremely impressive because it is massive. Like I can't even think how massive it would have been before it was sliced up, but it's it's a whole wall. And it's wow. basically the most famous piece in the museum. So when you go there, there's always people crowded around it. But it's a bit different to like the Mona Lisa, which is a tiny painting because it's absolutely massive. So you can still kind of like stand in front of it, even crowded with people and, and, and have a, a good viewing experience. But yes, I do really like this cover. When it comes to Terry Pratchett, I don't think the cover art really sways me one way or the other because I'm like, mm. I know I'm going to enjoy this. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it could have literally any cover. It wouldn't make a difference. I mean, we have talked about in the past, particularly with the older Josh Kirby covers, we feel like they're a bit of a turnoff for some people because there's this sort of weird lumpy <laughs> and also very like tropey fantasy art with like all of the women clad in like next to nothing and all but of then- the dudes with these enormous bulging muscles and weird, ugly, lumpy faces. Then Lorne comes and- through and removes all the lumps <laughs> as is his job. Yeah. <laughs> The, they are weird. Like, and I think that style became so associated with the Discworld to me that once I'd read one and I'd loved it, when I saw one of those covers, I was like, yes. But when it comes to books, I think it's it's less the art and more the design. Because mm. mm. the cover, it's like with food, right? The first bite is with the eye. When you're in a bookshop or a library 
and you're not looking for a specific book that you know about, you're just looking for what looks interesting. If the book cover doesn't say, I'm the kind of book that you're interested in, like if the aesthetics of it don't catch you. I mean, I, there's a book I read recently. I, I talked about this in a previous episode, The Bees by Leilin Paul, which I loved. And the cover of the edition that I read is just like hexagons like a beehive. And then the middle one is cut out and it's in it's in black and it just has the bees written in big letters. And I'm like, yeah, I want to read that. <laughs> this, this book is clearly really about bees. Um, I mean, I knew that book in advance. But, it, yeah, I think I think it does make a bit of a difference when you're looking for new stuff that you don't know about. I agree with Nadia in that with Terry Pratchett specifically, you can put whatever the hell you want on the cover. I like, even when they were like only halfway through, I'd have bought them, read them, got them for the library. Cause I'm, I know that these are the books that I like uh, in terms of drawing in new readers. I think maybe the Kidby ones are more accessible in terms of being less lumpy. Hmm. Um, an interesting example is like I buy a lot of Agatha Christie books. Cause I'm slowly collecting them and they have vastly different covers over time. And some of them I'm like, this is absolutely horrible. Like I hate this so much to the point where I'm like, do I want to buy this and have this in my home selling up my bookshelf by existing? <laughs> but um, also it sort of matches the other ones in the series. I'm sorry. I'm just like saying all my book cover facts at the moment. Um, <laughs> The thing you say about it saying the B is really large. I read an article about how titles are getting bigger because they're more grammable. So that mm. is better for book sales because if you can see the cover really big when someone posts oh. a picture of it next to their coffee, you'll be like, I remember that book title. So that's also like feeding into where do we see book covers these days? Is it just in stores? Um, to that end, I also think people should spend more time on spines. Um, that's an art that needs more work sometimes. Some books have excellent spines. Some spines really let down the work of the cover. Final thing I'm going to say, I have I could do a whole TED Talk on my thoughts on covers. Um, I really don't mind what the cover of a book generally looks like because I know what I'm going to read. Covers do matter, but I get disproportionately angry if there's a beautiful cover and the book sucks. <laughs> I'm like, how dare you not live up to your cover? But if there's an ugly cover and the book is good, I don't mind. Yeah, that makes sense. Movie covers, never. Um, oh, yeah. Just don't, stop doing it. I, hate, I understand it drives sales, but like, no. To the question, like, do you judge a book by its cover? I think the honest answer is yes. Like sometimes you see a beautiful cover, it will make you pick it up and you will discover a book that you might not otherwise have read. And the content is the thing that makes you read it, but the cover is the thing that makes you pick it up. So I do judge a book by its cover, but I also judge a cover by its book because if it's a book that I already love and they've given it a horrible cover, I'm like, why would you do that? So this question comes from a chew and sneeze via Twitter. Guilt by association when Bimes is talking about his armor is just a lovely little pun that only works written down. Do you have any great puns that only work one way, as in don't work when written but when said out loud or vice versa? I have lots. I can't remember them because I go to tweet them. I'm like, this won't make any sense. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, some of them, it's most puns you have to say out loud for them to work. But some you have to write down for them to work and they won't yeah, work when you well, say them out true. loud. There's a lot that depends on like how it's written. or like Because I have a job where I have to write headlines every morning, sometimes there's ones that I'm like, that would sound great if I was saying it or if I could write it a certain way. A problem that I've run into a few times is that in the subheadings, they put them into all caps and that sometimes destroys the pun because you mm. sometimes need a capital letter in a specific place to show that you're you're doing something on purpose. You're not just misspelling something. So there's a lot of different factors that can affect how effective a pun is in the medium you have to deliver it in. But I unfortunately can't think of any specific examples, though I may tweet them directly to you, Achuan, um, when I come up with one that just absolutely does not work for Twitter, which happens regularly. I'm like, oh, that's really funny in my head as I say it. And I type it. I'm like, that makes no sense. So I, 
sorry, but brace yourself for some puns that don't make sense. <laughs> we'll retweet those from Please the don't. Pratchat Twitter account. <laughs> Please do not. <laughs> I have a right. reputation to uphold. In that case, hold. you just have to follow Elizabeth Flux on Twitter to find those. <laughs> I, I generally only tweet the ones that do make sense. It's the ones that don't, like the ones in the draft folder that I just can't make work. But <laughs> How do you feel about puns, Nadia? Um, I love them. I definitely grew up with a lot of media that was very pun-based and and a lot of very British media. I think I talked about this last time I was on the show, actually, growing up with, like, Mm. The Goon Show and Monty Python and shows like that. I am not nearly as good as Liz is at coming up with them. Um, I I bowed down to her superiority. (laughs) You're probably doing better, more important and valuable things. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you. (laughs) So, final few questions. We're going to go back to Peter, um, who sent in a question via email. What is your favorite Discord reference that you got years later? For me, others include the veterinary Medici connection, as in it's a joke about doctors and vets, and the stance of the coyote, which I only learned about last week from listening to your podcast. Oh, thanks, Peter. Yeah. I mean, I think, as I said during that episode, that was one that I didn't get at the time. I can't think of any specific ones now. I've probably talked about them when we've covered books on the podcast, but a lot of them just have to do with me being much older as I reread them. You know, I'm reading it now and I'm getting jokes I definitely didn't get when I was reading them when I was 16 or 14 or however old I was when I started. I think I was 13 or 14 at the time. So, um, yeah, there's heaps. <laughs> there's heaps. Although I can't think of anywhere I've had this sort of light bulb moment where I've just suddenly gone, oh, that joke means that. <laughs> I can't think of any specific ones like that. How about you? I think for me it's probably a lot to do with, like, British slang that I don't necessarily mm have knowledge of like even in Nightwatch it took me a while to realize like up and coming young police end up being called Sammy's and I didn't realize that that was a play on Bobby's because I didn't know that Bobby's was like a term for British police oh yeah it's Robert Peel that's right because they were called Bobby's or Peelers was another nickname Ah, for British police for the same reason. Good yeah. merging of the characters with that reference there then. Yeah. Because it's yeah, like exactly. John Peel and Vimes together for us, like, you know. Yeah. Oh, and we, we didn't talk about this, but there's some great slang in this book, like when Nobby and Future Vimes meet. That was great. And then also when they're discussing what they're going to do to the oxen <laughs> with the ginger and the, the way they euphemize that, talk mm-hmm. about what they're going to do. That was great. Some really good slang there. I think I mentioned mine before, which was Rosie Palm, which oh, I yeah. recognized for the first time for this one. Thank you for bringing that into my life, Terry Pratchett. I appreciate it. Soul Music is another one. I'm um, just like Ben. I think every time I read one of these books, um, I've just learned a bit more along the way. So I got, I get more band name references each time because mm-hmm. when I first read them, there was bands I probably hadn't heard of or wouldn't have been as familiar with. So I didn't understand they were being referred to. And yeah, I guess the other one was the painting, as I mentioned before, that I hadn't, I didn't know that the cover was based on a painting. So when I saw that there was a painting of it like years ago, I was like, oh, cool. That's, that's a nice thing. That was exactly my reaction. I was sitting there watching TV and went, that's a nice thing. And then that's how Mm. I live my life. So the next question comes from Damien Smith via Twitter. How would you like to see them rise up? So this is a reference to the song that is peppered throughout the whole book. Yeah. Did you, were you able to sort of imagine that song, like what it would sound like? No. I can imagine the crypt, not this song. It's meant to be like sort of a military cadence song, like kind of like, um, you know, linen sheets are hard to fold. <laughs> you know, you know that one? Uh, I think that's oh, actually I'm a parody put it to that one. Tune. Oh no. 
it's it's meant to be kind of like that, like you sing it as as a while you're marching. But I've never heard a version of it that sounds like that. There's a one that I'll share in the show notes, which is fairly recent, which is a bit more upbeat folk rock kind of deal. Um, but it's also so repetitive. It's not a good song. <laughs> it's not a good song to listen to. Um, and I made a list of all the ways that they rise up uh, in the book that are mentioned. They rise feet, hands, head, knees, and ass up. <laughs> Uh, at various points in the book. And clearly you could just substitute anything in there. Like that's the point of the song. But is there, <laughs> what would be the funniest one though? Arse, arse is funny. Butts are always funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Liz. <laughs> what about, I mean, they're, they're angels, right? So what about wings? <laughs> yeah, but like the, that, angels' wings are angelic. Angels having butts, very funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've got a point. You've got a point there. And I mean, they're metaphorical angels. They're not. They're metaphorical not angels with literal butts. <laughs> If it's a zero fail from Good Omens, they'd rise books up, surely. <laughs> no, it's still butts. It just uh, butts is funny. Okay. There's, there's no right, better. There's, there's a clear answer to that. I feel like we've done some of our listeners uh, a favour by mentioning zero fails, but um, <laughs> go back and listen to our Good Omens episode, uh, which is from before there was a TV show, so it feels ancient now. Anyway, um, but yeah, it's an interesting song, and I don't know, just might come to rise. <laughs> I guess it's like, how would you like to see them rise up? And what's the funniest way? Like, it's different. Like, I'd like to see them rise up in a rational, aerodynamically stable way. <laughs> Not just Points careening. Up. Yeah. <laughs> like, do we like these angels? Do we want, like, where are they going? Are they on our, like, it, it's, a, it's a big question. But um, if we want it to be up. funny. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, that takes us to yeah. eggs, neatly. Oh, that does. Hmm? That does. And we did get some egg questions, Liz. Do you want to take us out on an egg question? All right. So this one comes from Felix P via Discord. What would you have asked for instead of a hard-boiled egg? I mean, I do like a hard-boiled egg, although my favourite is like a medium-boiled egg. Mm. As in where it's like a little bit goozy or where you can like actively dip soldiers in it? Well, it's a little bit because I, I quite like to put them on a sandwich. Like I like a good boiled egg, like lettuce and mayo sandwich um and uh because i'm vegetarian so i like like eggs for protein and if you slice them up and they're just just runny enough that they're sort of a bit oozy but not like they don't like the yolk just doesn't escape the sandwich entirely i that's probably i do like that but i also kept in its albumin prison (laughs) (laughs) yes but i also like uh i like coddled eggs and i like what are um, are coddled eggs it's kind of they're ki- it's when kind you treat of like them very kindly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Where it's kind of like little tea cozy on them to keep them warm. It's different. It's a bit it's a bit hard to articulate what makes it different from a medium soft boiled egg. But I also like poached eggs are delicious. They're good. I recently learned how to how to do it properly. <laughs> what I'm getting or, is that you or, like eggs, Ben. I love eggs. <laughs> I love eggs. Eggs and mushrooms. <laughs> oh and cheese. Eggs and mushrooms and cheese. <laughs> the best foods in the world. Mm. Love them. I mean, there's other foods I also love. I love a lot of foods, but those ones are up there. Um, but what would you ask for instead of- I mean, I feel like they've asked for all the things they absolutely need. Truth, justice, freedom. Uh, reasonably priced love does not get a look in on the back of the <laughs> of the book, which is a bit of a shame because that's very funny when Rosie Palm's there going like, free love, no, if you want us involved in this conflict, <laughs> cannot be free. And I'm like, fair enough. That's fair. <laughs> But what would you ask for? I mean, are we are we asking in the context of someone's just shouted truth, love, freedom, whatever, and then you're going to add your pithy thing on? <laughs> or is there just something else you actually think is important? 
Are we trying to improve the world or are we hungry? Well, I think like in the context of the book, Vimes is talking about like he's trying to bring it back down to reality. They're talking about these like highfalutin yeah. concepts and he's like, I just want something reliable that I can look forward to tomorrow. Um, mm. I mean, for me, like my ultimate thing that I would look forward to if we're talking about food specifically is like an almond croissant, which is a very, very bougie treat that would give a completely different <laughs> feeling to the whole slogan. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I mean, I can also picture it very strongly, so which is I mean, saying I a lot, I guess, given that I can't really picture it. <laughs> I feel like a biscuit or a, like my favorite kind of snack, like a biscuit or a, a bit of chocolate. Maybe a chocolate bit. Maybe a Tim Tam. A Tim Tam. There you go. Very Australian mm-hmm. as well. Tim Tam. Double coat. Tim Tam. I feel like you can't really get better than a hard-boiled egg, though, because you have it, like, as soon as it's boiled, it's great, but it's also very transportable, mm. given, like, mm. what they're going through. Like, you could have it later if you want. It's very um, practical. And it's inherently funny. There's something inherently funny about a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's so many different ways you can, like, make it funny, because, like, what if he, like, sits down in the middle of a battle and has, like, the proper... Like, because in the new Poirot movies, like, they make a whole thing about him eating boiled eggs in both of them. Um, the movies aren't great. I love them. But um, it is inherently funny. They have him doing all sorts of, not all sorts, he eats them twice and it's funny both times. He d- he is supposed to love boiled eggs in the book, right? Yeah. And they do that because they show, because he has obsessive compulsive disorder and they use the eggs to show that in a non-judgmental way, I think. Like in the first movie, he wants two boiled eggs and he gets brought ones different sizes. And so it becomes like a whole thing where he has to get like a second one, the exact size as the first one. And then all this stuff happens and he doesn't get to eat it. And it's just, yeah, there's like boiled eggs are great to eat and they're great for plot development. (laughs) Yeah, I could go. I could go with a boiled egg. I'm definitely having one after this. Uh, I mean, in a Discworld context, I think I would definitely go with a boiled egg. In a modern world context, I might go with a Tim Tam. Nadia, what would you, you want the croissant, the the almond croissant. croissant. Yeah. And you'll stick with the egg, Liz. Yeah. I mean, Veterinary already has a croissant. (laughs) For some reason, now I'm imagining someone drawing fan art of the three of us as a boiled egg, a Tim Tam, and a almond croissant. (laughs) Listeners, make it happen. I don't know why I thought of that suddenly. If but you want to make it. that happen, listener, I would so love to see it. Don't spend too much time and effort on it. It's a very stupid idea. It is a delightful idea, and I, I feel like my leg is like my future as a boiled egg is you know to fit. It's good. It's good. Are we not all in some way boiled eggs? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're fully cooked. Hopefully, yeah. Oh, but look, I think that brings us to the end. That brings us to the end. Nadia, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to discuss such a momentous book that's so many people's favourite. I don't like to rank them, so I'm not going to definitively say where where it ranks for me. But I didn't ask this before. Is it either of your favourites, do you think? I also have real trouble choosing favourites. And I think it's so much dependent on, like, your mood or or where you are in your life and your kind of reading life. Um, So I'm not willing to say that it's, like, my favourite, but it is one that I do really love. Mm. Liz? Same. Um, It's... I think one that I used to call my favorite, but now um, I have a sort of rotating group of them that like, there's a core group that I will revisit and I love a lot. And this is this plus going postal. And I think now the truth are some of my top three, but that's Mm. not a solid lock. Things come in and out and move around all the time, but this is always in that group. Yeah. 
I always used to say Small Gods was my favorite, and I think it's still up there, but I, yeah, I don't think I can pick one. Anyway, mm. I just thought, I thought I established that at the end before we leave. But Nadia, thank you again so much. If people want to find out more about the Deck of Crystals and your other books, where should they go? Uh, you can go to my website, which is www.nadiabailey.com. Very easy to remember. Easy. Yeah. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, of course, as well. Um, thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts about any of the things we've brought up, if you've got your own answers to the questions that were sent in, and thank you to everyone who sent in a question. We got so many for this book. We're sorry we couldn't get to them all. We tried to do as many as we could. I'd like to just give a quick mention to a side project I've been working on, which I haven't mentioned on the podcast before, which is the Guild of Recappers and Podcasters which is a very nerdy thing I've just been doing in my spare time, which is a wiki that catalogues all of the different Discworld podcasts because we are one of many. Like, there's a whole community of people out here who love Terry's work and who are talking about it in a podcast format. Most of those podcasts are reading all of the Discworld books, usually in order, um, but I thought it would be nice to put them all in one place. So if you're enjoying Pratchat, but you also want to go now and listen to some other people's opinions of Nightwatch, you can go to guild.pratchatpodcast.com and click on the link for Nightwatch. You'll need to go to the list of Discworld books and you'll see all of the podcasts that have episodes about Nightwatch. They'll be listed there. Uh, makes it easy. I Basically, this is something I wanted for me. So now everyone has it. Uh, I thought, why why keep it to myself in a like spreadsheet somewhere? That's very cool. Um, so if you use it, please let me know. If you know of a Pratchett podcast that's not there, let me know. If you've just got general feedback, let me know. The best place to let me know is via Pratchett. So you can tweet us at Pratchett Podcast or email us at chat at pratchettpodcast.com. But of course, we'll be back next month. And Liz, we, we've traveled through time this month, but next month we're kind of going to travel through space, right? Honestly, I don't know. I haven't read this one, but it oh, is really? The Last Hero. So um, I assume your joke makes sense. <laughs> it does. Oh, I'm so excited. You haven't read it before. It's such a, it's so good fun. I love, I love The Last Hero. This is one of the two Discworld illustrated novels. This one illustrated not by Josh Kirby, who illustrated the earlier one, Eric, but by Paul Kidby, the new Discworld artist. So it's a whole new adventure. Oh, it's so good. And we're going to have another returning guest. George Rex, Georgina Chatterton, who came and talked to us about Eric. So we thought, who better to get back to talk about another illustrated novel? So if you have any questions about The Last Hero, please send them in. You can use the hashtag Pratchat55. can't believe it's 55. <laughs> These numbers just keep getting bigger. It's going to keep happening. Or you can email us, chat at pratchatpodcast.com, or hit us up via any of our social medias and let us know what you want to know about that book. But thank you for listening and... Until next time, if you go back in time and meet yourself, remember to bring a hard-boiled egg with you. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Nadia Bailey. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat54. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.